And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. Hagman and Hagman Report. That's right. The Hagman and Hagman Report. We're coming to you live from our radio and television studios here in just beautifully dreary northwest Pennsylvania today. Again, live from our radio and television studios. I want to thank each and every one of you for joining us tonight, joining me tonight. Joe is not in tonight. Not that I gave him the day off. Apparently he must have. Well, he apparently he... He took a tumble and uh, maybe broke his ankle. So uh, it's going to be me flying solo, but not really solo. We have a very special guest tonight, Jim Mars. Uh, I'll tell you something. I I just can't wait to get into the conversation with Jim Mars tonight. So, folks, saddle for battle. The hour is late. Time is short. We're be- we're We're being gamed every step of the way. It, it seems like, um, it, it seems like every day there's a different headline with a different spin, with a different take, with a different crisis, with a different plan. The past is indeed prologue. Oh man, I'll tell you something, folks. It is, uh, it is getting to the point now where you just don't know what will happen next. As I mentioned, uh, Jim Mars is coming up today. Doug flying solo, Doug Hagman flying solo on the Hagman and Hagman Report. HagmanReport.com. That's for news information analysis. HagmanandHagman.com. That's our show page. Of course, we broadcast uh, right here on the Global Star Radio Network or simulcast on Blog Talk Radio. I want to thank them both, BTR as well as Global Star. Global Star is the place to be, folks. It's a great network. Thanks so much, Todd, for carrying our program. And being the great guy you are, we should all give him a round of applause to the studio audience. <laughs> and, of course, you can watch us live right here on our official YouTube channel, Team K9. Folks, if you haven't done so, subscribe to our YouTube channel as well as our social networking feed. Tonight's broadcast brought to you Folks, courtesy of Minuteman Stove. It's right down there in the in the show description. Minutemanstove.com. That's Minutemanstove.com. Folks, if you, right now, in, in these uncertain times, oh boy, are they uncertain. It just makes sense to have a sustainable backup method for accomplishing one of life's most basic, most important daily task and that's preparing food you know I made the mistake of not preparing not really realizing you know what we needed to to cook food I mean really and it was one day when my wife said to me and and I'm very serious about this who's cooking you or me and with what in the event of an emergency and it was right around the same time that uh, I was introduced to Lane Miller from Minuteman Stove so Folks, MinutemanStove.com, MinutemanStove.com. Need I say more? Uh, more later, but 
you get the idea. You don't want to be eating freeze-dried chicken. <laughs> it's not bad when you do the fruit, but I've got to tell you, the meat is eh, best served warm. I was in a restaurant the other day, and I, I ordered chicken. I asked for it medium pink inside. I'm just kidding, of course. You had to be there, I guess. That just felt like a lead balloon, right? Single acts of tyranny may be ascribed to the accidental opinion of the day, but a series, but a series of oppressions begun at a distinguished period and pursued unalterably through every change of through every change of uh, ministers too plainly proves a deliberate systemic plan of reducing us to slavery it's Thomas Jefferson and that's Thomas Jefferson as cited by our guest tonight Jim Mars Jim Mars's book Our Occulted History that's right Our Occulted History by Jim Mars do the global elite conceal ancient aliens, or, or more, what I like to ask, do they conceal a hidden agenda? And I think that they do. And of course, Jim Morris has got a number of other books, including, and we've got them all. Um, I think every one of them. Rule by Secrecy, Jim Morris, and The Rise of the Fourth Reich. I don't have enough hands for the books he's written. This book is incredible, Rise of the Fourth Reich. This fits so well with what Steve Quayle has written. Uh, just amazing. And what uh, uh, Peter Lavenda has written and others. But Jim Mars nails it. And I've got the trillion dollar conspiracy in my office. And I, I spoke at length to Jim Mars today about... Uh, Tonight, what we're going to talk about tonight, and I got a feeling we're going to go, we're going to cover a lot of ground. So, uh, from our occulted history to to a number of other issues. So, are you ready? Are you buckled in? Are you ready? Are you saddled for battle? I hope you are. Without any further ado, folks, his website is jimmars.com. Two R's. That's jimmars.com. Visit his website. Bookmark his website. And on the program description. If you look, it's a link to his Amazon page where all of his books are. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you what an incredible array of books he's uh, written more than I could, uh, than, than than I could ever think of writing. And I just finished, as of this morning, our occulted history. So if we have him ready, is he is he on? Ready to go? Let's rock and roll, Jim. How are you, sir? Doug, it's great to be with you. I'm I'm sorry, Joe uh, is uh, absentee, and uh, I just uh, be sure and send my best wishes and prayers along because I hate to see anybody uh, get hurt. Uh, I know my wife fell down the other day and uh, came home feeling feeling pretty miserable, but then uh, she managed to get a good night's sleep and she got up and kept going. <laughs> she said, "Now she's." She's glad she's got that extra weight. <laughs> he gave her some cushion. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of funny, Jim. Uh, I, I often refer to Hillary because she is going to be propped up by pillows. I, I say, you know, weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Well, Joe, you know, I, I think maybe this might have been, uh, some bad backsplash there because, uh, Joe did fall down. And, but yeah, but yeah you know, it's, uh, he hurt his paw and, uh, Double entendre there, uh, but anyway. Uh, so, um, but but uh, he'll be back with us, I'm sure, on Monday. But but Jim, it's great That's to great. have you, man. I'll tell you something. You have really nailed it with your books, all of your books. Uh, but uh, if we can, uh, you know, if we can do something, because I thought this was great. After we hung up today on the phone, after after we got done talking, I I, I was just really uh, kind of blown away. I don't know. If, can you share the story about the title of? trillion dollar conspiracy is that okay to share that because i thought that yeah really yeah would... well you know hey they, they can censor my books but they can't censor my mouth okay <laughs> well you know yeah, after, yeah. After... what i was telling uh doug today is because he was giving me some very nice compliments about my book the trillion dollar conspiracy which was uh, uh kind of covers what's happened between 2008 and now with the uh the financial frauds and the near collapse of the of the financial system and the and of course world dot com and enron and and all these things that we tend to forget about you know that at one point were major financial uh, uh, uh polls uh, supports for our financial system and then they all crumble away uh, but uh, I told him I said uh, the publishers made me change the title um, and, and and I said I don't want to change the title and they said no we, we, we won't publish it unless you change the title to the trillion dollar conspiracy I said oh man because my original title had been zombie nation okay now that would attract some attention wouldn't it and this by the way folks was this was you know i don't know i'd have to look and and see exactly uh when that came out but here i can find here real quick that was like 2000 and uh this was 2010 Okay, this was before The Walking Dead. This was before all the zombie movies. This was before the zombie genre got to be such a fad among you know young people and 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 everybody. And the uh, only excuse they ever gave me uh, for changing the title from Zombie Nation was that they were afraid people might buy it, thinking they were getting a zombie novel. Okay. And as I explained to them, I said, well, number one, if they can't read the book cover and if they can't thumb through it and realize this is a nonfiction book, then they probably deserve to buy it, you know. And and on top of that, uh, from a mercenary standpoint, what's the problem? You're talking about increased sales. So obviously there was something other that was just a cover. The other thing, and I think this is important, is that my editor, the person I was actually dealing with, he he actually told me, he said, this was not my idea. He said, this uh, came down from upstairs, 
Okay, so somebody upstairs, somebody I don't know who, I have no contact with, I cannot plead my case to, is making decisions on, uh, you know, what the book cover is going to be. And uh, and let me explain why I wanted to use the title Zombie Nation. Because at that time, and to a certain extent today, everybody, I'm sure you all remember that uh, after the 2008 financial slump, we had these banks that were, were uh, by the books, uh, insolvent. They were broke. But they got propped up by that public tax money, TARP, and the TARP money went to them, and they were still operating. So they're broke. They're dead, but they're still operating. And that's why the financial people then termed them zombie banks. And I'm sure most of you, if you'll think back, you'll remember hearing that term. So I decided when I was writing my book, I took a look at the numbers. This nation today is in debt uh, to the tune of more than $20 trillion, okay, which is an unimaginable number. And yet I also saw that if everyone in this country, and I mean everyone, I'm talking about every man, woman, and child, if we all sold off all our assets, our homes, our cars, our TVs, our clothes, we probably could not accumulate much more than about $10 trillion, which means we're still $10 trillion short of the $20 trillion we owe, which means financially we're dead. But we're still operating. We all get up and go to work. We still get that paycheck. The computer blips representing our money is still there. So we are a zombie nation. And I thought it was quite apropos to use as a title, but see... Somewhere somebody said, that might draw too much attention. That might be too simple. People might understand that. We may, we, we, we may get too many people reading about that. So they forced me to change the title. It became the Trillion Dollar Conspiracy. It was, and I have checked mostly, it was stuck on the financial shelf of the bookstores, which no one except just that small niche of people who, uh, you know, care about investments and stocks and bonds. They're the only ones that goes and looks at the financial shelf. And although it did very well, it, uh, it, it was not included among my New York Times bestsellers. You, you know, you talk about the ultimate censorship and the irony of, of things. It, it, yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, and, and, and let me let me explain one step further, Doug, because I don't want people to think that I'm just this is just sour grapes. You know, I, I don't care. I, I'm not writing for the money. I'm writing to tell people information because this goes all the way back to uh, my degree in journalism. I committed to be a journalist, and I was and I was taught back back in the days of the old republic that.
that I was supposed to be finding out the truth and as best I could and then presenting that to the public. And fool that I was, I really thought that's what I was supposed to be doing, and uh, I still do. So that's what I'm trying to do is simply I'm not trying to sell books. I'm trying to get information out to people. Unfortunately, most of the major media today, certainly the major broadcast media and most of the major newspapers, they are, have all fallen under the control of a handful, a literal handful, about five corporations with interlocking ownerships and directorships. So we have a small clique of people who now control everything we see and hear, okay, with the only exception now of uh, social media, which is that, and they're trying to curtail that, and some of the alternative uh, broadcast media, such as Hagman and Hagman, and others I could name. Uh, but if you don't tune in and listen to these specific places, uh, if you just watch TV, you are getting the corporate party, party line uh, with uh, all the twist spins and misinformation and disinformation. It's really incredible. And uh, also in that same book, Zombie Nation, I had a whole section. Uh, and I, I'm mentioning this because I think this will prove to any thinking person that this is nothing but sheer censorship. My editor says, I think you need to leave this section out. And I said, well, I don't think so. I think it's very important, and I think people need to know about this. And he said, well, let me put it this way. If you don't take this out, uh, I'm going to cancel the book. So in other words, you do it our way or it doesn't get published. Well, of course, that leaves me in a position of, well, I either have to agree to take it out or none of it gets out. So I caved and I said, okay, okay, we'll take it out. And what was the section that they wanted me to take out? The section about how the corporations censor the news. And I couldn't help but laugh. I told him, I said, well, you've kind of proved my point, haven't you? Is that you know, incredible? It, it is. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, it, we're, we're talking with Jim Mars. Jim Mars, that's jimmars.com. You, you know, Jim, when you told me that, um, it, it really it really kind of smacked me upside the head thinking about that, the irony. And, and of course, yes, I mean, the censorship, the, the different methods that they tweak and they censor us. Oh, right. But. Man, you know, it, it's, it, it, yeah. Well, uh, well, look, look at uh, a, a very, very recent example that I think of is that, uh, when they, when the national media shows the Donald Trump, uh, talks at the Republican National Convention, they mostly, uh, zoomed in on him. You get to see him, and yeah, there's a bunch of people behind him, but it's just him, and there's a, people behind him. You don't, they don't rarely, rarely showed you the overall picture, okay? Then, same thing on the Democratic National Convention. When Hillary's up speaking, they kind of zoom in on her, and then they'll pan out maybe just a little bit, and it looks like she's right there before a huge crowd. In fact, but then when you actually see the actual photographs, you'll find that in Donald Trump, if you could see the total picture of the auditorium, the arena where he is, it's packed. It's shoulder to shoulder. There are thousands of people there. On Hillary, when, and I have seen the photographs, if you back off, there's a lot of empty seats. In 
And in fact, uh, and I checked on this, it's absolutely true. There was an advertisement on Craigslist. They actually advertised and paid people $50 to come and fill seats at the Democratic National Convention because after the pro-Bernie Sanders people walked out, that place was probably about half empty. There was no, no massive support for Hillary Clinton. And yet you wouldn't know that by watching the news because they just zoom in on the candidates and flash around and show you pictures of where there are some filled seats. And you think there's a massive crowd there when there's not. Amazing. Yeah, you know, I, I saw that. I saw the report of that about the Craigslist, and, and I really, at first, I thought it was a spoof. I thought, oh, I, I did too. True. Yeah. Man. And to think of it, yes. Until, course, until I saw, and I think it was my friend Alex Jones, and one of his reporters actually grabbed one of these guys and did an interview with him. And I saw the interview, and he's he's kind of sh- shuffling his feet, but he, and he oh, and he was a clean cut young white guy with a dark suit and a tie. And he says, "Yeah, yeah, I, I was paid fifty bucks to come sit here in the seat." <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, and Jim, I was on, I was on with Alex Jones this past, uh, Tuesday, and I asked him about that just to make sure. I think it was Joe Biggs that was there, um, at the convention. I can't remember, but, but yeah, he, he said, oh yeah, that, that, that was true. You know, yeah. so, uh, yeah, it's, See, it's now, amazing. as a newsman, as a newsman of almost 50 years, half a century I've been in the news business, okay? To me, that's news. That should have yes. been news that the Democratic National Party are having to pay people to come fill the seats. Okay? That should have been a news story. But Amen. you never saw that anywhere except Alex Jones, and now we're mentioning it. Yeah, exactly. And, and folks, I mean, pay attention, because um, what what uh, Jim Mars is, is talking about here is, is so important, because we are, we're being gamed. This this whole thing is, is a, a massaging of our perception, and perception is reality, as you well know, right? I mean, this is, right. this is how everything's, you know, being gamed. Well, well Jim, um, uh, you have, I, 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 I took out, my all, all of your books from my bookcase, and I, I put them on our conference table today. And I was going kind of through each one of them. You've woven a, a tapestry, just a, a marvelous, exquisite tapestry. If, if you did not write another word, the the, the tapestry that you've written or the, that you've created through your your writings takes us from the the most. I don't know the, the the deepest of the earliest of times to the current events. I mean, Take, takes you, us from the ridiculous to the sublime. It, well, that too, that too. All right, um, that, you know, it, yeah. you know. Here, here's it, this is interesting. Think about this, Doug. Uh, not too long back, I was on some somebody's talk show, and uh, the, actually, this was early on because now I have about I don't know eight or ten books, but they were talking about my trilogy. And I thought, what are they talking about? I hadn't written a trilogy. But when you, when I went back and really got to thinking about it, there is some truth there. The first book that I wrote that immediately hit the New York Times by settled this was Crossfire, The Plot to Kill Kennedy. And that yes. came out in the late 80s, okay? And that was simply a book about what I, all the information I'd gathered uh, on the Kennedy assassination. Uh, and I had all this because I was here. Uh, I have a, <laughs> I have a photograph of me as a young wild college kid dancing on the stage of Jack Ruby's Carousel Club. 
that was taken oh. about a month before the Kennedy assassination. So I was here. So, I was here the whole where, time. Okay, I wait, 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 wait. Where were you? Uh, uh, in, where were you at twelve thirty uh, on November twenty second? Uh, well, okay. I, I hate uh-huh. to admit it. I, I was in bed asleep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, but to give you some idea to show you that uh, that my book about Kennedy uh, was not out of some um, fad or some love of Kennedy. I was uh, in, in college. I was on a degree for journalism. I had to have a lot of English, of course, and I'd had an English exam that morning, that Friday morning. And as was kind of my want, uh, I had kind of stayed up all night cramming, okay, for this test. And I went, took the test, got back to my apartment about 11 o'clock or maybe a little after in the morning and needless to say I was dead tired so I went in and flopped on my bed and, and I was asleep at 12.30 when the assassination happened my roommate so, so, ran yeah, in and said mind. wake up <laughs> said <laughs> they shot Kennedy mm-hmm. and uh, I was half asleep and also again keep in mind I was redneck Texan I was had grown up in the Baptist church the, from the pulpit. I'd been told that if Kennedy gets elected, the Pope will run the country, and that he was soft on communism. And although I thought he was a good-looking guy, had a beautiful wife, and I thought it was kind of cool that we would have a president with some little kids crawling around uh, on, in the Oval Office, I was not a Kennedy supporter. So my roommate said, no, no, seriously, something's happened. So I went, what? Okay, now I'm awake. Now I'm a journalism major. Now I know that I better start paying attention. So we ran in, turned on this little funky television set we had, and uh, black and white, of course. And uh, I remember we were watching TV for maybe 15, 20 minutes before uh, Walter Cronkite finally came on and wiping tears from his eyes and said, uh, it's now official, uh, the president is dead. Well, they made that announcement right around 1 o'clock uh, that afternoon, which means I was on to this story within 10 minutes of it happening, okay? And uh, like I said, I'd already been in Dallas. I knew who ran Dallas. I knew the conservative streak of Dallas. And I knew that H.L. Hunt had posted those wanted posters for... Hey, hey Jim, hey, Jim, hey, hold, hold on to that thought. We're up against the break. This is okay. fascinating, though. Uh, folks, you're listening to Jim Mars. What a treat. What a treat to have Jim Mars. I want to give a shout-out to John Robertson for assisting in setting this interview up. God bless John. But Jim Mars, author of Our Occulted History and many other books, folks, visit JimMars.com. Truly a great truth teller and a patriot and now, obviously, a friend of this program. Uh, wow. JimMars.com. We're right back. Stay right where you're at, folks.
Jim Mars is our guest for the entire program. It, I just pinch me. <laughs> oh man, uh, a gentleman that I have grown. I, I just have a tremendous amount of respect for. I've I've read n- almost all of his books. I think. Um, although I've got to get that. I got to get Crossfire. I've got to get that. So maybe I can. Uh, uh, maybe I can twist uh, Jim's arm a little bit uh, if he's got an extra copy in his office. What a what a great patriot! What a man of uh, I mean, if if I look, I'll tell you something. He's probably forgotten more about the our, our occulted history, the nation's history than I will ever know. Uh, a journalist, author, researcher, New York Times bestseller of many books, our occulted history. That's that's the big one right now, folks. Go to Amazon, grab that book while you can, before before you know what hits the fan. Um, before we get back to Jim, I just want to mention as well. I want to give our best out to Pastor Paul Begley. Yeah, it's my understanding he was in a motor vehicle accident and he was uh, briefly uh, hospitalized, although he, he's okay. Um, thankfully, he's okay. But uh, want to give our best wishes out to Pastor Paul Begley for his speedy recovery from whatever residual effects from the motor vehicle accident. Of course, Pastor Paul Begley, uh, a friend of the program as well, and uh, he's got a great program uh, on a, every day. I, I haven't had an opportunity to reach out to him, but I will. And, of course, I'm flying solo tonight, Joe. My son, co-host, is, uh, well, he's a gimp. He's walking around. Well, he's not walking around, apparently. He's uh, waiting on, we're waiting on the x-rays to determine whether in, indeed his ankle is fractured. But apparently his ankle was the size of a pumpkin. And uh, we're, we're waiting on the uh, crime scene analysis to determine whether or not he indeed tripped or where his wife might have been. That's right. Now, our guest tonight again is Jim Mars. Visit his website. That's jimmars2rs.com. All the, all of the links are on the uh, show description there on YouTube, BTR, and Glo- uh, Global Star Radio Network as well. And Hagman and Hagman.com, HagmanReport.com. That said, Jim Mars being in Dallas, dancing on the stage of the Carousel Club, Jack Ruby's Carousel Club, a month before the assassination, awakened by his roommate of the news of the Kennedy assassination. Jim, that kind of, did that start you out in your just the infamous quest for the truth or is that what really got you i mean well no actually it goes back further than that i I can remember uh even in junior high school i was drawing little cartoons i was writing little stories and then i got to, to high school and i ended up being a page editor on the high school paper and i would draw cartoons and i would uh take pictures and i would uh, and i've done that and then uh when i went to college uh, while I was going to college as an underclassman, I was working for the Denton Record Chronicle, covering sports and drawing cartoons and taking photographs. And then I became editorial page editor of the campus newspaper. That's what I was doing at the time of the Kennedy assassination. So, yeah, I was already on a road to journalism. i tell you, if, if you want to know, a, here's my dirty little secret. <laughs> I had already had such experience there. In fact, also in high school, I worked on the junior achievement program where uh, me and several other high school kids were accepted uh, to 
write and publish and edit a, a, an entire page for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, which was a major big city newspaper, uh, and I forget if they had a title for it, but basically it was a teen page, okay? So we were writing stories, composing headlines, and that put me in touch, and we would do that at the newspaper. So that put me into contact, even in early high school, with uh, senior editors, reporters, people uh, uh, who later would cover the Kennedy assassination. So, see, I've kind of been involved in it all along, but the dirty secret is is that I... Even at that point, I had not really decided that 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 was going to be my life's work. It was when I got to college, and uh, they asked me what my degree plan was going to (laughs) be. And I'm going to confess that I was really bad in math. (laughs) And I think the reason for that, Doug, is because, to me, I cannot relate math to people, and I'm kind of a people person. I like talking to people. I like hearing their stories. I like trying to see how things affect people. And when it came to math, and particularly algebra, A plus B equals C, and it's like, what? What are you talking about? You know? So, I hear you. Yeah. so when I got to college, I said, well, what degree plan do you have that does not require any math? And they said, well, there's journalism. And I said, okay, sign me up. <laughs> so that, that's when I officially got into journalism. But as you can see, I was there even beforehand. So when the Kennedy assassination happened, I mean, you know, I knew. I said, this is a big story. And it happened right here in my backyard. Happened right there in Dallas. I know people in Dallas. I know how Dallas is run. I know who runs Dallas. And so I began to uh, to pay very, very close attention and start and started working on that case just, like I said, 10 to 15 minutes after it had happened. Now, the thing that got me going was that whole weekend, and, and uh, I don't know, you may not remember this, uh, Doug, but that whole weekend, all the media was preempted. You, if you yep. turn on the TV, if you turn on the radio, if you pick up a newspaper, you're going to read about the Kennedy assassination because that's all they were talking about. Okay. That's right. Unlike today, unlike today, I, I know on 9-11, if you went to the major news channels or the major networks, they're all talking about 9-11, but you could always turn over to the Disney channel, right, or the cartoon right. channel or the sci-fi channel, and you didn't have to watch about 9-11 if you didn't want to. But in, in 1963, that weekend, if you turn on a radio, TV, or read a newspaper, it was the Kennedy assassination. So we were all paying attention. And the thing that struck me right off was that weekend was the number of witnesses in Davy Plaza who said that uh, the numbers varied. Some people said there was many as six, eight shots, maybe more. Others said there were two to three shots, uh, and it kind of varied. But the consensus seemed to be that there was a shot and then a pause and then two shots, pow, pow, right on top of each other. And this is pretty much what has been established to this very day. Okay, now at that time I was in Texas and I had bolt action rifles. I'd been deer hunting and I knew that you can't get a bang, bang with a bolt action rifle. You have to cock the bolt, eject the empty shell, 
load the new shell, push the bolt down before you can pull the trigger. So the best you can get with a bolt-action rifle would have been a pow, pow, pow. And when they said there was a pow, pow, then that immediately kind of raised the red flag for me. And in fact, uh, in later years, I interviewed a friend of mine, uh, Jim Wright, who was the former Speaker of the House. And oh, yeah. he had been riding in the motorcade right behind Kennedy, and he told me the same thing. And he was a hunter. He knew guns. He said there was a shot and a pause, and then pow, pow, two shots right on top of each other. Well, right then I knew, wait a minute, you, you, you just can't do that with one person and a bolt-action rifle. But back then, Doug, we were all much more naive we trusted the government. We believed in the government. We had all just come off of World War II. We thought, you know, we were God's gift to the world. Uh, we stood for freedom and democracy. And so I, I couldn't believe that, uh, you know, I, it didn't settle with me, but I really didn't have anything to put in its place. But I began to keep up with the evidence. Now, we could spend this whole program on the Kennedy assassination, and so I want to try to close this off, but I want to hit two or three little bits of evidence that you and your audience may or may not know that I think is very, very relevant. First off, sure. on the Monday, the Monday night after the Friday assassination, the district attorney of Dallas, Henry Wade, was holding a news conference, and he kind of blurted out, he said, oh, have I mentioned we have his fingerprints on the rifle? Lee Harvey Oswald. We've got his fingerprints on the rifle. Well, that pretty well cinched it in everybody's mind. You know, got to be guilty. Mm -hmm. His fingerprints are on the rifle. But now, but now let's look closer. The very night of the assassination, against Texas law, against any common sense, there was pressure from Washington on the Dallas police to turn over all the evidence they were collecting to the FBI, and they had it shipped to Washington. Chief Curry said, well, how can we conduct an investigation if you're taking away all our evidence? He said, but finally they were pressured by people in Washington, and they caved in, and they sent all the evidence to Washington, D.C. The next day on Saturday, the 23rd, I have a copy of the document signed by J. Edgar Hoover himself that states no usable fingerprints were found on the rifle or even the inner parts of the rifle. On Sunday morning, we have the, uh, the uh, transmission slips showing the rifle was sent back to Dallas. On Monday morning, two FBI agents, Harrison uh, and um, Drain, Vincent Drain, carried the rifle to Miller Funeral Home in Fort Worth where they were preparing Oswald's body for burial. Paul Grudy, G-R-O-O-D-Y, was the funeral home director and had, uh, in, in a few years, had become a very good friend of mine because as a police reporter for the Four Star Telegram, uh, he was running the ambulance service. So anytime there's a wreck, an accident, plane crash, shooting, you know, and an ambulance is involved, then, you know, there I am trying to cover the story, and I'd end up talking to Paul Grudy. And he was a fine gentleman, a, a honest and really great guy. And he told me that he was there when the FBI agents put Oswald's dead hand 
for the burial that afternoon. So, as you can see, the evidence was fabricated. Now, that's number one, number one. Number two, we have autopsy x-rays and photographs now that seem to indicate that he was shot from behind, as the official story says, blah, blah, blah. The fact is, is that uh, Gerald Custer uh, is the man. He's not a writer. He's not a conspiracy theorist. He is the man who took the x-rays of President Kennedy's head along with Floyd Reby, who was the photographer at Bethesda Naval Hospital, who took the autopsy photographs, which are now being shown to us in the National Archives. Gerald Custer said there was no damage to his face or the part of the skull that is shown in the x-rays in the National Archives today. And he said, quote, these are fake x-rays, end quote. Uh, a very respected doctor, Dr. David Mantic, has examined those x-rays and also concluded that they have been fabricated. All right? Floyd Reby, the photograph, who took the photographs of Kennedy's body during the autopsy, said, quote, the ones in the National Archives today are phony and not the photographs we took. Okay? Wow. So... Now, again, to show the cover-up that has taken place, I interviewed uh, the surveyors who uh, had surveyed uh, Dealey Plaza first for um, Life magazine. They were hired. Uh, Bob West was the county surveyor of Dallas County, and his friend and associate, Chester Brenneman, and uh, they were hired on the Monday following the Friday assassination to survey Dealey Plaza. And they said that they were uh, using still frames from the famous Zapruder film uh, as comparison. So they were taking longitude, latitude, trajectories, elevations, uh, etc. All right, and uh, they said that Monday they and the Secret Service people they were working with all concluded amongst themselves that there was absolutely no way that one man could have done all this shooting. But then later in the spring of uh, 1964, Chester Brenneman and West were hired again to survey Dealey Plaza, this time by the Warren Commission, the official federal investigation. Now, uh, some years later, uh, I interviewed Chester Brenneman, who had become county surveyor of Eastland County, and I also interviewed Bob West. And both of them said the Warren Commission altered their numbers. Now, the significance of this is very, very simple, but very, very critical. Today, we are beginning to see these uh, programs and documentaries that uh, purport to be uh, computer simulations of the Kennedy assassination. And they say, oh, look, see, it's entirely possible for one man to have shot, uh, you know, one shot that caused seven wounds to two men and emerged unscathed. Of course, that's possible. See, look, we can do this by computer analysis. Well, as we all know, garbage in, garbage out in a computer. A computer only knows what you put into it. 
and obviously they are using the government's figures and numbers, survey numbers, elevation numbers, you know, that they got from the Warren Commission, that the Warren Commission got from West and Brenneman. And both West and Brenneman told me the government altered the numbers. So what I'm telling you, Doug, and I'm telling your audience, you cannot believe any computer simulation today in the Kennedy assassination if it's based on the government numbers. Interesting, but yet you know the millennials or the people, the the, the young young people who have grown up with computer games and familiar with the computer will right. turn to that, you know, and, and rely on that and believe that the the the, the, the simulation That's just it. as they believe. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, if wow, they come on it, TV and say, "Here's a computer simulation. It shows two plus two equals six, they'll believe it. Yeah, exactly. Yep, yep. We are, you know, we are in trouble. I, I really appreciate, uh, Jim, your your time spent on this because, uh, and and I want to thank my daughter Jackie who is here, um, handed me a receipt from Amazon. So it looks like she bought. Jim, you're off the hook. Uh, she she uh, went to Amazon and uh, uh, bought me a, my my own copy of Crossfire. So I can't. Crossfire, that. great. Yeah. Okay, so. quickly then in Crossfire you will see the original. Bob West Brenneman survey of Dealey Plaza, and you will see that they're marking bullet strikes on the curb. They're marking the yellow stripes where they set off the, uh, the where the headshot took place. And yeah. these are comp- uh, uh, sniper markings. And you'll also see where they said that the first shot is impossible to be uh, come from the sixth floor repository because there was a tree intervening in the line of sight. And before we leave it, one other quick thing. Too many people have heard that, well, the driver turned and shot Kennedy, you know, which is, no, that did not happen. And in the new edition of Crossfire, the one you're getting, you will find a close-up of the Zapruder film where you can clearly see that uh, Greer, the driver's, his hands at all times are on the steering wheel. But Mm. it does not entirely absolve the Secret Service because Greer also testified that he never looked around, he never looked back at Kennedy, that he was simply driving along, and the first thing he knew was when Kellerman next to him said, we're hit, get us out of here. And uh, that's when he stepped on the gas and they sped out of Dealey Plaza. But the films, the Zapruder film, the next film, other films, and the show a different story. They show that at the sound of the first shots, in contrary to Secret Service regulations, which state at the first sign of trouble, you get the gas, you hit the gas, and you get out of there. At the first shots, he hits the brakes. The car slows down to almost a complete stop, and Greer looks over his right shoulder towards Kennedy, and only after the fatal headshot is delivered does he look forward, the brake lights come off, and the car speeds out of Dealey Plaza. Mm. Well, you know, Jim, um, this past uh, spring, uh, myself, my son Joe, Eric the Tech, Jackie, uh, we were at Dealey Plaza. That was the first time I was ever there, and uh, I was just surprised at the. It's much I, I smaller know. than you thought it was, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is. And I, I, what really struck me being there, and, and I, 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 uh, was the fact that 
who would take such, who would plan such a, a, a route? Um, you know, right. the, the turns and such. It just, it just struck me as really being odd that they would, they would put, uh, uh, Kennedy in that, that killing field, killing zone. Uh, because man, that's, that's, exa- that's exactly oh. what happened. Um, the, it, it, since you were there, you'll understand what I'm saying. Main Street comes straight down through Dealey Plaza, which, by the way, is kind of a triangle. It's a, it's a right. pyramid, an inverted pyramid. And Main mm-hmm. Street comes right down and, and, and bisects it and goes straight on under the underpass. Now, it is true. You can't argue that they changed the motorcade route because it is true that certainly at that time, uh, if you come down Main Street and you're trying to get to the uh, to the Stimmons Expressway, you had to make a sharp right turn on Houston Street and you make a 120 degree turn back onto Elm, which takes you through the right side of the or the north side of the Triple Underpass, where you exit the ramp to get onto Stimmons Expressway. Okay, but this is the President of the United States. They had closed off the streets. They had stopped traffic, you know. And if I'd been in charge of security, you could have put a two-by-four on Main Street there under the underpass. The car could have gone straight down through Dealey Plaza, rolled onto uh, Elm over this very low curb, and then right on up onto Stimmons, and you would not have had to make that 120 degree turn in front of the school book depository, uh, which, by the way, was a violation of Secret Service regulations. And because I read it myself, they said you do not make any turns greater than 90 degrees, and if you have to make a 90 degree turn, you station security people there. Well, neither sure. one of those were done. Wow. Well, uh, I, I'm excited, folks. Uh, we're talking with Jim Mars, jimmars.com. That's M-A-R-R-S. Uh, just a prolific author. And, of course, we're talking about the Kennedy assassination at this point. We've been talking about that here um, the past uh, segment. Crossfire is the book. It's. Uh, um, I was looking at it. and uh, Look at the editorial reviews on Amazon uh, from Publishers Weekly, Library Journal, all positive. I can't wait to, to dig into the 648 pages in the newly revised and updated edition, Crossfire, if you are interested in what I believe is one of the most significant acts of, uh, well, uh, significant events, at least in my lifetime. Uh, that doesn't include, of course, 9-11. But, uh, so we've got so much to talk about, Jim. We've got about, uh, about three minutes before we have to pause for the top of the hour. But, uh, in, in the well, next then, three minutes. Let, here, then let me give you a ahead. teaser. Moving right. on from the Kennedy assassination and, and with the success, and, and by the way, it was only uh, a couple of months after publication of Crossfire that I was contacted by Oliver Stone, who said, I'm making a movie, can I use your book? And I said, well, let me think about Okay. <laughs> 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 sure. So it became a, a, a basis for the Oliver Stone film, JFK, that caused so much controversy at the time back in the early 90s. But as I would go around and ask people around the country, everything from boardrooms to cab drivers, what do you think's the next big, deep, dark, secret government cover-up? And, Doug, the answer was almost unanimous. People wanted to know about what is the truth about UFOs. Is there really uh-huh. anything there? If there is, what is it? Is it us? Is it secret test crap? Or is it aliens? 
you know, what is it? And I thought, you know, I'd like to know too. So that led to my next big uh, bestseller, uh, Alien Agenda, which uh, because it was about UFOs and it came out in the 90s, and most people were not ready to deal with that. It, it did not hit the uh, New York Times bestseller list, but I have been told uh, since it's been translated into more than a dozen languages, it has become the top-selling nonfiction book on UFOs in the world. Wow. And, and you've got a style, well, you're an investigative journalist. I mean, you, your style of writing, and folks, Jim Mars's books and um, uh, for, you know, I'm, I'm not even going to say forgive me for for saying this, but but it, your style of writing is just a, it's a pleasure to read. You 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 laid the facts out. Um, as a matter of fact, the our occulted history, which we're going to get into next segment here, really uh, you, you lay the and that was a wonderful segue, by the way, into that book. But it, it just it, it um. It was a, it, it, your work is a pleasure to read. The investigative well, thank you, aspect. thank you. Again, that comes. I think that comes back to two things. Number one, my my journalism training uh, in English and in journalism. And uh, after another years, you, you you want to try to write plain. You want to try it straightforward to people. The other thing, of course, is I don't claim to be uh, you know the world's greatest expert on anything, but I'm not stupid, and I'm a good old boy from Texas and I try to just tell people here's what it is okay but I also back it up with quotes and with statistics and with uh, scientific papers and with the evidence okay in fact fact, Doug you probably discovered this for yourself when you go and try to tell somebody about some subject you basically have two ways to go you can either um background them and start telling them the history uh, let's say if you want to talk about some aspect of the Bible you have to go back to Genesis and you have to go back to the Old Testament and you have to explain to them how this came, who wrote it how they wrote it, how it changed over the years and at that point most of them have gone to sleep, right? And you've lost exactly them. Stand or by, you can Jim. Say, okay, Jim. here it is. It is, and give it to him in twenty-five words or less. In which case, they say, "Well, I get it, but how do you know that? How can you exactly. prove that?" <laughs> and, and therein lies the rub, Jim. We're up against a hard break. Hold on, going to be right back. Jim Mars is our guest. What a wonderful interview! Stay right with us. Altitude gives us our best uh, view, best uh, best wide angle view of what's going on. How about a view from Mars? That's right, a view from Mars. Visit Jim Mars at jimmars.com for that view from Mars. That's two R's, M A R R S, jimmars.com. He's our guest right now. What a fabulous, uh, just what a fabulous guest, a very prolific author. New York Times bestseller. Uh, we're going to be talking this segment about our occulted history, putting some, connecting some dots, actually. Before we get to Jim, I might just want to mention that uh, rocket stoves are the way to go. I have to relate a story just very quickly. I, of course, I use Minuteman rocket stoves, tried them out. 
love them. Uh, Minuteman Rocket Stove. If you go to MinutemanStove.com, that's MinutemanStove.com. You can see what I'm talking about. These are the uh, reinforced ammo cans, if you will, that provide a heat source for any type of an emergency, and they are fantastic. I actually put... Uh, on my way to the studio, I put the uh, uh, rocket stove on top. You know, folks, you know, you know what I did? I put it on top of my uh, my vehicle on the hood. And as I was driving out of the driveway, on my way to the studio, I hear this awful racket. And I, I, I man, I, I didn't know what what would happen. I thought maybe um, uh, somebody threw a rock or something at my car, and the the stove tumbled off of the the roof of my car onto the back and onto the ground. Now, you ordinarily. You would think a product like that wouldn't survive that fall. Let me tell you, it uh, survived, survived it just fine. So, folks, in these uncertain times, it just makes sense to have a, a sustainable backup method for accomplishing one of life's most important tasks, that's preparing food. This is the way to go. There is nothing better than a Minuteman rocket stove from MinutemanStove.com. Nothing better at all. And they hold up when you put them on the hood of your car and drive off. Uh, no, I I would dare say you, other other stoves would not. We all need a way to cook and a method to process water. Of course, a disruption of power. I mean, think about it. Think about the many things that could happen to you, uh, or happen to the fuel distribution, the 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 power supply. Well, have something in your ready-to-go bag or your pantry. Minuteman Rocket Stove can provide your family or group the perfect solution, and that is it's small, lightweight, wood-burning, and every bit as powerful as a kitchen stove with decent wood. It's smokeless, fully self-contained for clean storage and transport. Because it's so efficient, it cuts down on your wood-gathering and processing chores to a tenth. And I mean a tenth of what would be required if cooking the old-fashioned way, like an, over an open fire. So don't rely on gas or fuel stoves. You can, but don't. Because eventually, the supply is going to run dry. Burning wood inefficiently requires a lot of manual labor. This stove, only at MinutemanStove.com, at least that's where I would go, only there at MinutemanStove.com, is the way to go. It solves all of your problems. It's easy to feed um, and easy to use. Prepare your family. Prepare for yourself. Order a Minuteman rocket stove today. It's going to make bad times much better. Lane Miller, he's the owner. Go to Minuteman. Go to the website, MinutemanStove.com, and take a look at his crew. This is all American-made, made in the U.S. American jobs, American labor, American it's an American product. The stoves come with a two-year warranty even when you drive off with them on your hood and they bounce around and they last. So MinutemanStove.com, great, uh, just a fantastic product, MinutemanStove.com. Our guest, again, Jim Mars, so great. Uh, he's su- such a gracious man and so intelligent. Jim, thanks for um, bearing with me. As I fly solo, Joe will be back on Monday. Of course, he's nursing a, a, a wounded ankle and... Uh, uh, but 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 thanks for thanks for uh, granting us uh, being so gracious with your time. Let, let's get right <laughs> yeah, into. You it. mean thanks for filling up the airways? Since <laughs> <Well, laughs> <laughs> uh, no. unfortunately Joe's not there to help you fill it. Oh, that's all right. That's all right. Yeah, yeah it, it's it's so it's so great. Now let, let's talk about uh, wherever you want to go. And I know your occult, uh, our occulted history. Your book is uh, kind of really causing a lot of. Uh, not controversy, but a lot, a lot of people to talk because you make a lot of connections. You're talking about UFOs. Where do you want right. to start with this? Um, uh, it's it's hard to even know where to go. But let, let, quickly on UFOs, 
again, when I started, I, I've been at it a long time, folks. And when I started off and, and the talk came up about UFOs, uh, it was, there's no such thing. The government's position was they don't exist, okay? Uh, actually, all it was was just uh, delusions, misinterpretation of aircraft, uh, and p- possibly some kind of mass psychosis which uh, may sound strange today, but seriously, in the 50s and 60s, this is what we were being told. <laughs> and, and, Doug, I thought, even as a young reporter, I thought, wow, what a story. A heretofore undiagnosed, contagious mass psychosis. You know, that's got to yeah. be a story. Well, you don't hear about that anymore, and the reason is because with the advent of the camcorder and, of course, today's ubiquitous cell phones with, all you know they can take videos and photographs uh if you go google up ufos you could probably spend the rest of your life looking at the photographs we have now of ufos and it's not always just a light in the sky there are craft there are structures there okay so the argument about do they exist you don't hear that anymore it's gone yes they're here the question becomes who are they what do they want all right. Now, the key thing to remember is this is not a recent phenomena. This goes all the way back through our earliest history. The uh, Hindu Vedas, which are probably amongst the oldest writings in the world, uh, talk about the flying Vyamas, okay, and how that they had even... Uh, uh, weapons that could destroy an entire city. Uh, you go back to the Sumerian civilization, Sumer, it's S-U-M-E-R, and and quickly let me differentiate that between, in the Bible we read about the good Samaritan and people from Samaria, that was an area of, of Palestine, of that area over there. I'm talking about Sumer, S-U-M-E-R, this was the area in what is today Iraq, it was between the Tigris-Euphrates River, and those people wrote down there history and their thoughts and all of their information uh, in cuneiform tablets. They would take clay and they used a stylus to write down everything they wanted to write down and then they would bake that clay and turn it to stone and there's thousands in fact half a million of these writings, tablets still in existence but they're hidden away in various museums all around the world and it was not until the mid 1800s that uh, anybody got around to trying to translate them so when they began to translate them they found out about the Anunnaki well the Anunnaki translates basically as those who came from the heavens and landed on the earth Okay. Well, in the mid-1800s, the most advanced scientists had no concept of space flight or uh, atoms or uh, genetics, DNA. Uh, they just, you know, that they, they didn't know anything about that. So when they would read about these people who came and flew through the air, who landed, who taught law and and mathematics, uh, architecture, they just wrote it all off as well. That's their mythology. That's their gods. And you, in fact, you can go to the Encyclopedia Britannica today. If you look under Sumerian mythology, you'll find the whole story. 
The only thing that's changed in recent years, uh, starting with uh, the prolific number of books by uh, Zachariah Zitchin, who was a translator of the Sumerian language, but he's not alone. Uh, there are many others now. And what has happened is, is that our perception, the translations are the same. It's our perception of them and interpretation. More and more people are now believing that what they were talking about, and we wrote off as their mythology, is actually uh, history, what they actually knew. And in fact, if you start comparing the mythologies, you find that uh, they all have a line of similarity. Uh, for example, uh, in the Sumerian, they talked about their god who was in charge of the earth, and that was Enlil. Well, we find the Egyptians say, well, there was a lord over the earth that was set. The Greeks say, no, the, the Lord over the earth was Zeus. And the Romans, of course, said, no, it's Jupiter. Okay, the names change because of the language change. But the characteristics and the uh, attributes of, of these characters remain the same. Now, am I trying to say that these were all gods? No. <laughs> they were uh, beings of advanced knowledge. In fact, uh, when I wrote my book, Crossfire, uh, not Crossfire, but Alien Agenda, um, I interviewed a woman who was a very devout Christian, and she had had one of these so-called abduction experiences, and they had taken her abo uh, aboard a ship, they had taken her to some other world, shown her things, and the whole time she's going, but, but what about God? Don't you believe in God? And and she said, one of them finally turned to her and said, look, our God is your God, you know? And of course, if you stop and think about it, uh, the God of the universe is the God of the universe. Uh, and I think it, it's kind of arrogant for us to think that God made all of these billions of galaxies they contain billions of suns, they contain billions of worlds revolving around those suns, just so we'd have something to look at in the night sky. Uh, you know, if, if there is a God of the universe, which I believe there is, and I know you do too, Doug, most of your audience, I think, believes that, then he's the God mm -hmm. of the universe, right? <laughs> Sure. Okay, so it's important to understand that these, what they called gods, or we'll simply call them the Anunnaki, because that's what they called them. In fact, in the writings of the ancient Sumerians, they never referred to them as gods. They just said the Anunnaki. The Anunnaki did this, they came here, they went there, they did this. You know, it's only the translators in the 18th in the 1800s who had no concept of spaceflight or of other worlds and all like that who said, well, they, they, they must be talking about their primitive gods. And so uh, it's really an amazing and, and expanding uh, understanding of the world and the universe. So according also to these tablets, these Anunnaki, uh, decided that they, uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago, came here, and they decided they wanted to see if they could uh, create some workers, somebody to do all the grunt work for them, okay? 
And so, uh, interestingly enough, uh, they, uh, their science officer, Inky, says, well, you know, I'm working with some earth primitives in, down in what we now know is Africa. He says, I think I can uh, tweak their DNA a little bit and maybe upgrade them a little bit and we can make a worker race to do the work for us. Now, interestingly enough, in the Council of the Anunnaki, they had the same moral debates that we have today about cloning and about uh, genetic manipulation. And they were saying that, hey, you know, we can't play God. There is a God of the universe, and, and he's the creative force, and, and that's not up to us. So it's important to understand that what Inky ordered or argued was that, well, look, we're not creating anything. We're just improving the breed, all right, just exactly as we do with Sheep, horses, cows, dog, cats. Okay, we've not, we haven't created any of those, but we improve the breed. We use crossbreeding and uh, for centuries to produce, uh, you know, horses that can run a little faster, cats that have not so long hair, uh, and all like that. So it's 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 uh, important to understand when you hear somebody talking about these ancient astronauts or these ancient aliens and how that they um, manipulated our DNA, nobody is suggesting that we are created by aliens. Only God can create things. But it does appear that we have been improved or manipulated. Our DNA has been manipulated by these ancient astronauts. Uh, And it goes all the way back. Yeah. Let's not forget Ezekiel, who, by the way, I happen to think is a good reporter, because Ezekiel didn't say, I was eating mushrooms one day, and I, and, and I had these visions, and I saw this. Uh-uh. He starts off saying, by the river Shebar in the year so-and-so after the king releases, and he gives us very specific details. And then, of course, he sees what he calls a vision of God. And he calls it that because that's the only way he knows how to to describe it. He doesn't know what it is. But it makes a great whirling sound. It makes a great noise. There's a lot of dust and smoke. There's fire. The thing lands. And if you keep reading in the book of Ezekiel, you'll find out that it picks him up and it takes him up in the air and it takes him to a mountaintop and it takes him to a city. So unlike some of the more modern translations where they say uh, he had visions, that's not exactly what he said. He said he was sitting there, he saw this thing, and it was a vision of God. And uh, I do want to throw this at you. I think you're going to love this one, uh, Doug, because this is uh, something you probably don't know about and something you can test for yourself. And it also shows that... Uh, I, for one, believe the Bible is inspired by God. But I do also believe that over the years, through the Council of Nicaea and onward, that it's been edited and redacted by people, okay? So you have to look at the overall message, and you cannot pull one statement or one verse out of the Bible and build a whole philosophy on it. Um, 
let's go to the King James Bible, which is the one that I was brought up on, probably the one you were brought up on, yes. and, and is pretty much the basis for all of the editions of the Bible that we have today. Now, if you'll open it up and look at the fly page, you'll see that it says the Bible according to King James. All right. Now, number one, I don't recall anybody trying to say that King James was the son of God. <laughs> In fact, well, he wasn't even that literate, but he was smart. So he hired 45 scholars to read, transcribe, and put together what we now know as the King James Bible. So there's 45 of them, but there was a 46th because he put a, one person in charge, and that person happened to be Sir Francis Bacon. And if you'll do your deep study of Sir Francis Bacon, you'll find that there are many people of, of very great intelligence and education, such as Mark Twain, such as uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes material, and many right. others who claim that it was Sir Francis Bacon who actually was behind the writing of the Shakespeare material. Yeah, now, there's you know, been Jim, a controversy. I, I, I do believe that. I, yeah. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you or talk over you. No, but, no, no. But, but, yeah, but there's this, a lot but, of people. This has been an ongoing controversy, right? Right, right. And, and a lot of people know that he's been accused of writing the Shakespeare material, or at least along with his invisible college. Uh, and that's because, and you may not know this, the whole thing is there, there's secrets everywhere. You know, there's, we, we talked about the Kennedy assassination. We're told one thing, reality is something else. We're told that Queen Elizabeth I was called the Virgin Queen. And yet, according to my studies, she gave birth to Sir Francis Bacon. He was the illegitimate son of Queen Elizabeth. And this is why she uh, set up her summer palace right next to the Bacon estate. So she got the Bacon family to adopt her illegitimate son and raise him as Sir Francis Bacon. And that's why he was her favorite for the longest time. And uh, she saw to it that he got the best education. He was thoroughly schooled in court etiquette. All of the things we see reflected in the Shakespeare material. And this is something that's, uh, that's bugged the scholars for years is that Shakespeare, there was a historical Shakespeare, but he was just barely literate and he was a commoner. And, and they've often wondered how could he have known all of the court etiquette and the expressions and the, uh, protocols of the day, you know, w without having this royal pedigree. Well, Sir Francis Bacon did. And see, he then was put in charge of the 45 scholars who were putting together the King James Bible. Now, back then, everything was hidden. They, they, they had to be very surreptitious in what they were saying because if they produced a play, say, like Macbeth, and at that time, probably the general consensus was that, that King Duncan had simply died in his sleep. Well, but they wrote... Macbeth, and we now know that that Macbeth and Lady Macbeth they poisoned him. Okay, so that they were telling truth to the public at that time through the most public medium they had, which was the theater. All right, but they couldn't do it in their name, 
so they put William Shakespeare's name on it, and I think it was kind of an open secret. It was one of these secrets like uh, John F. Kennedy uh, messing around with uh, Marilyn Monroe. People in the know knew that was going on, but it was just not talked about, and it was not publicized, and it was the same type situation. I think everyone, including Queen Elizabeth, probably knew that her son, Francis Bacon, was actually writing these plays, but because of politics, they didn't want to put his head in danger, so they shoved it off on William Shakespeare, and that's why it was a 100 years or more before anybody got around to writing about Shakespeare. But to make a long story short, they also had their secret ciphers and their secret codes. Uh, Sir Francis Bacon, well, we, we know we know that John D. Uh, went by the secret code of 007. He, he was England's original 007, long before James Bond. And we know that Sir Francis Bacon, his code was 46. And I think he took that because he was the 46th person uh, to, to work on the King James Bible. Now, if you want to see the hint that he left behind to show us this was probably true, go to the King James Bible and go to Psalms 46. If you'll count from the first, you'll find, and you'll count 46 words, you get to the word shake. If you'll go 46 words from the end of Psalms 46, you'll get to the word spear, Shakespeare. This was Francis Bacon's little code letting us know who was in charge, not only of writing the King James Bible, but also who was behind the writings of Shakespeare. Is that wild or what? Very interesting. Now, does that um, does does that translate out? Does that is that accurate in terms of the uh, translation? Uh, I mean, I mean, the, the psalm, the psalms. Uh, uh, what am I trying to say here? Uh, it works out to the original language. Yes, then, right. Yes, you okay. have to make right. sure you get the King James version of the Bible because in other later versions, you know, they they've changed this, they changed that. It may shift the words. Uh, uh, pretty much, but uh, in, the, in the King James Bible, uh, the first line reads, "God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble." The very last line says, "The Lord of Hosts is with us. The Lord of Jacob is our refuge." And if you count forty-six words in, you get shake. Forty-six words from the back, you get spear. Very interesting. No, I, you know that, that's something I didn't know. Yeah, I did not know that. And, and I know, if, if folks, look. You know, we we know that that uh, God's word is incorruptible, but man certainly can corrupt anything he puts his hands on. So that's right. that, you know, so it, it's one of those one of those things. Uh, well, to but, me, it's amazing that over all the centuries, the fact that the Bible was put together early on as simply oral tradition. In other words, they'd just they'd talk about it over the campfires. And it was only within about 300 years of the life of Jesus that they finally started writing it down. And they, I think they, and I could be wrong on this. I don't claim to be a huge scholar. I'm just a, a reporter. But I think it was first put down in Aramaic, and then it was put down in Greek, and then it got translated into uh, Roman. And then, you know, and then, of course, once Constantine, the Roman emperor, 
made Christianity the official religion uh, of Rome. And from that point, then we begin getting, then you have the councils of Troy, the councils of Nicaea, uh, and all of these councils where they all would say, well, we like this verse, we don't like that verse, and we like this book, but we don't like that book. And they were, you know, and you got all this editing like that, all the way up till today, where now you have all these branches. You got the Standard Bible, you got the Living Bible, you, you know, I don't know, the Working Man's Bible. And and what I'm getting at, Doug, is it's amazing to me, and I think a tribute to the truth of God that we have so much truth still existing in the Bible today. Jim, you know that that's that that very redemptive statement. I, I must say, but that that is, you're 100 percent correct on that, uh, folks. Our guest is Jim Mars. JimMars.com. That's M-A-R-R-S. Author of Our Occulted History, Rule by Secrecy, and just a number of books. I think he's up to ten, perhaps. It's just just a very prolific author, best-selling, the um, uh, New York Times best-selling author, and of course he's our guest tonight, talking about a variety of issues, including Our Occulted History, available on Amazon.com. Very interesting read. Boy, I, I got to ask him too. Something was found in Iraq. Um, and we'll get to this. I don't know when, whenever Jim wants to, but uh, I'm interested about what was found in Iraq um, um, here in 2003-ish or, or thereabouts. Uh, okay. Uh-huh. All right. Well, whenever whenever it's time for that. Folks, Jim Mars, JimMars.com. Stay right there with us. More to come. I usually say a, a view from cruising altitude, but when you get a view from Mars, you get uh, really a, a huge glimpse of what's going on. Um, you know, you might ask, you might be asking, well, what does this have to do with, oh, I don't know, the current presidential elections, the per- current uh, political landscape? What does this have to do with anything? Well, you know, past is prologue, isn't it? Uh, a lot of history was written and rewritten. And we talk about the New World Order, don't we? It, well, come to find out, New World Order is maybe the Old World Order 2.0. I guess that's one way of putting it. Portions of tonight's broadcast brought to you not just by Minuteman Stove, but also by AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com. That's AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com. Long-term storable food, visit AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com. We're talking with Jim Mars. He's our guest. I'm flying solo. Joe is getting his ankle checked out. Don't know. Maybe it's broken. Maybe not. But uh, our prayers are with him. He'll be back on Monday, I'm sure. Jim Mars has been... Uh, we, we've been talking about a lot of different things. And, and you know, um, 
it, it's interesting too as i as i said earlier i laid his books out uh across my conference table and he has really woven a tapestry of history the investigative report in him really is set a lot of uh documented a lot of our history and it's amazing what we think is history no 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 revised revised uh, to, revised for the people in power right now that's what it has to do with the current day now jim thanks for holding through the break uh I had mentioned the discovery in Iraq, and perhaps I was a little bit premature on that. And I didn't want to. Well, no, no, but you have to again. Unfortunately, I have to give some background. Okay. So that you understand what happened in Iraq. Number one, we know it wasn't about weapons mass destruction. We know it wasn't about getting their oil. We wasn't. It wasn't about bringing freedom and democracy. So, yeah. what was? What was the deal behind our precipitous invasion of Iraq? Well, let's go back. Uh, and back to when I mentioned about the ancient Sumerian tablets that tell us in the far distant prehistory that these, uh, these Anunnaki came and landed on the earth and created this great civilization in Sumar. All right. One of their leading cities, by the way, was Ur, U-R, which was located right down the, at the uh, near the Persian Gulf, where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers come together. Now, who was it in the Bible who came from Ur? It was Abraham. It was Abraham. And if you look in the Bible, it says Abraham uh, came from Ur of Chaldea. Well, Chaldea was simply an old term for Mesopotamia, which is now Iraq, one of the few places on the world that free Americans can't just freely go to and travel to unless you want to join the military. Yeah, so, yeah that's true. So Abraham, who was the patriarch and the founder of the Hebrews, but also the patriarch founders of the Semites. Uh, And that's another thing that people need to understand. If you try to say something against the policies of Israel, they say, oh, well, you're an anti-Semite. And if you want to throw them off, say, no, I like the Palestinians. And that'll throw them off because the Palestinians are Semites. And, and they okay. trace their uh, heritage back to Abraham. So Abraham was not a Jew. He was not a Hebrew. He was not a Palestinian. He was a Sumerian, a ranking Sumerian, because Ur, Uruk, Haran, many of these ancient Sumerian cities were named after his relatives. So he was a ranking Sumerian and uh, therefore probably had the knowledge that had been passed down piecemeal and broken. You know, we didn't get the whole thing, but we got bits and pieces of the knowledge that came from these Anunnaki. And he carried that knowledge into Egypt. And then after he had arrived in Egypt, with his knowledge, probably not him personally, but with his people and his ex- extended family, with the people he brought with him. All of a sudden, we have this incredibly advanced civilization that arose in Egypt to become the dynasties of Egypt. And what's wild about that, Doug, is that the earliest ones were the best ones. 
the jewelry and the techniques and the uh, ways of living were higher in the older dynasties than in the later ones. In other words, the Egyptian civilization didn't evolve, it devolved. And it came down from the advanced technology that was brought uh, with Abraham. Now, part of this included in the Egyptian uh, stories and mythology, uh, the pre, the uh, pharaohs uh, in the Book of the Dead, on their way to, on the, as they studied about how to make their way to the afterlife, they talked about the Shemana or the Mafus, or which was apparent, or the conical bread. And we see this in the carvings of the Egyptians, where the pharaohs are offering these conical things. It was called the conical bread. It was called the shamana, and it was supposed to help them uh, uh, build up their their body, their mind, their spirit uh, on the way to the afterlife. Um, in fact, on the Book of the Dead, at each stage along the way to the afterlife, the Pharaoh was supposed to say, what is it? <laughs> Which is, to me, is really, really interesting because when the Hebrews left Egypt under Moses and they traveled in the wilderness, they survived because they would wake up in the mornings and there would be this white powdery substance laying around on the ground and they would gather it up and they would put a little water with it and they would make it into a dough and, and they'd make it and bake it and then they'd eat it and that's what they called manna. They called it the manna from heaven, okay, because they didn't know where it came from. And interestingly enough, in ancient Hebrew, manna means what is it? <laughs> they didn't know what it was. And uh, nobody in the... Uh, in the uh, preceding history has known exactly what it was. But now I think we have a hint because back in the uh, 80s, a farmer out in uh, Arizona discovered single atom elements uh, that are uh, found in gold, silver, copper, cobalt, nickel, along with you know a lot of the uh, more exotic metals such as platinum, palladium, rhodium, and in fact they are found in our bodies and in our food and in our water. He had he had this single atom uh, elements uh, patented under the name orbitally rearranged monatomic elements. All right, and again, I think we see the hand of God in this because it turns out that O R M E uh, is ancient Hebrew for the tree of life. Okay, so he found some very strange things about these orbitally rearranged monatomic uh, elements, and which are now being studied scientifically. And there's been a number of scientific papers dealing with it. Uh, such as, and just briefly, uh, the titles are microclusters, super deformation of nuclei, new radioactivities, super deformation, uh, collective and single particle structure. These are all scientific, new superconductors. These are all being now studied. And here's what's wild. They found that when you put this white powder, that gold 
can actually, through a smelting process, a heating treatment, can be reduced to this white powder. And uh, oddly enough, you can take the white powder and through a reverse process, you can turn it back into uh, a piece of, uh, of material gold. But it even gets better, Doug. They found when they put the white powder of gold in a uh, scale uh, in the weighing pan, the pan weighs 44% less than it did before you put the powder in it. Which now means how can that some, be? yeah. some, I mean, somehow this powder has anti-gravetic uh, properties. Now, this is really interesting because now this leads us to the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which was Arcacia wood plated with pure gold. Uh, and we know the, the mercy lid was three and a half inches thick and made of pure gold and was estimated to weigh 2,714 pounds. And yet we see these illustrations where they have four or five guys supposedly carrying the ark along. Well, wait a minute. You know, three or four people can't really carry more than a ton, you know, 2,700 pounds. So now we understand that, and there are accounts, that within the Ark of the Covenant was this white powder. Well, now we see that if it was the monatomic powder of gold, then they weren't carrying the Ark. <laughs> it was kind of floating. They were just guiding it along. And and I think this gives us a whole new understanding of, of basic, this ancient technology uh, that we had. Uh, and we see other evidence of this, by the way, uh, in the story when Moses goes up on the mountain to get the uh, Ten Commandments. Uh, and, by the way, he also got the Tables of Testimony which nobody much talks about, but I would really like to hear what was all in that. Uh, another thing that we tend to forget is that when he came down with the uh, Ten Commandments, uh, he found the children of Israel uh, knowing that something magical was happening with the gold, but they didn't know the secrets. They didn't know what it was. But they had taken all their gold and they had melted it down and, and made it into a golden calf and they were worshiping it. Well, this made uh, Moses so mad that he threw the Ten Commandments down and broke them. And he had to go back up on the mountain and say, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry, but I kind of broke your commandments. Uh, would, you, would you give them to me again? And God said, nope, <laughs> you're just going to have to remember them. And so that's something else I think we need to remember. We we are getting what Moses remembered of the Ten Commandments, and I just hope his memory was good. Uh, and and by the way, there is a, a side issue there I feel like I need to throw out, because the, the commandment that he remembered that says, Thou shalt not kill, well, that's caused a lot of problem over the centuries because people who uh, join the army are, are fighting a war, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who want to be a, con a conscientious objector, and they say it's just not right to kill, okay? 
I have spoken with Hebrew scholars who say that the word, the original word that was used has been mistranslated as kill, okay? It said that the actual word used was thou shalt not murder, okay? And I think, Doug, you understand the distinction. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, if and, you yeah. if you set out maliciously or out of some petty motive, and you murder somebody, that is is bad. If you uh, have to kill somebody who is breaking into your home and is a direct threat to your uh, to you or your family or your loved ones, that's not murder. That is self defense. And in fact, as you well know in the New Testament, when uh, the disciples came to Jesus and said, uh, hey, the Roman authorities are after us, you know, uh, you know, uh, should we defend ourselves? What did he say? He said, uh, have you got a sword? If you don't have a sword, go buy a sword. That's right. So I think Jesus shows us that self-defense and killing in a righteous cause is I just want to say one thing in, in defense of that, um, not that it needs defending. Thou shalt not murder, um, and, and the translation issues. Uh, I, I, I had a couple of, uh, well, not more than a couple, I have numerous emails right now saying, well, you know, the uh, the Bible is clear, the King James Version of the Bible, uh, and the other versions, uh, especially like the New King James, it, they're very similar in translations. Folks, let me tell you something. The new, tra- and I, Jim, pardon me for, for interrupting here, but I just want to make no, this please. clear. Um, the new, j- just for those people who believe, for example, that the King James and the New King James Version are the same or very similar, close. Uh, for example, the New King James Version of the Bible omits the word Lord 66 times. The word God is omitted 51 times. The word heaven is omitted 50 times. Do you want me to go on? The word uh, hell is omitted 22 times. The word uh, uh, damnation is completely taken out. The word devils is completely taken out. So those of you out there, and, and many Christians who think, well, wait, you know, New King James Version, okay, I can use it. Well, think about that. And there are many other aspects to that version, uh, but I won't get into that, take up the guest's time. I'm not going to do that. And the other thing, too, many Christians, and, and Jim, I believe this to be perhaps one of the most important uh, aspects of what you're talking about, about the um, about the murder versus kill. You know, many Christians today, including the clergy response teams that I've heard will say, well, wait, you've got to lay down your guns. Turn in your guns. Uh, Romans 13. You know, the whole thing, we we have to be passive because that, as we are instructed by God. And I don't think there's anything uh, in my Bible that tells me that I've got to sit back. And this is a pet peeve of mine, Jim, so I'm sorry. But, you know, I, I have Christians saying, well, wait a minute. Uh, as a Christian, you, you, you know, you can't really defend yourself. And if your wife is being raped by ISIS or whatever, uh, and your family's being ravaged and whatever, you just kind of have to, that's God's will, or you just have to deal with it. No, I don't believe that to be the case. But, but see, Jim, isn't it kind of like, you know, that is part of the deception um, yes. In my view, so okay. Uh, I, sorry, I, I totally I agree. I totally right. agree. We, we could take up a whole program, I think, talking about that. But uh, as a te- as a Texan, uh, 
my, I, when, I, when I'm told to love my enemies, that I take that to mean if they're really bad. I mean, really, really bad. I'm not talking about somebody you don't like or somebody yeah. who says something yeah. that offends you. I'm talking about murderers, rapists, you know, the really bad of the bad. Uh, my idea, if you love them, then you kill them and you send them right on up <laughs> to that big judgment in the sky. And it's not up to us to judge, but we can certainly put them in front of God a little quicker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, no, 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 I bumped you off track. Go ahead, sir. Okay, well, back to the story. So Moses comes down, and uh, he he throws down the Ten Commandments, and he, he's mad because uh, they have taken the gold, made it into a golden calf, because they don't understand the science and the and the. Uh, technology that that he had at hand uh, and in fact in exodus 32 it says as he came near the camp he saw the calf and the dancing moses anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hand broke them at the foot of the mountain and he took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to a powder and made the people of israel drink it okay now think about this for a minute if he melts down gold and makes the people drink it, he's going to kill them, right? Because you can't drink molten gold. But he ground it to a powder, and he made the children of Israel drink it. And that's because he knew the secrets handed down from the Anunnaki through Abraham and passed along through the Egyptian mystery schools. And Moses was thoroughly grounded in school and all of that. And we now think we even know where it came from. Uh, in 1904, the famous British archaeologist Sir William Petrie discovered on, on the Mount Sinai, in the southern Sinai Desert, which is also known as the Mount of Moses, he found what he said was an ancient Egyptian temple, and in there was a smelting process, a smelting operation. And when they lifted up the flagstones, they found a lot of white powder. But this was 1904. They didn't know what it was. They had no idea. And the desert winds came and just blew it all away, and, and nobody paid much more attention to it. But I think this was evidence of ancient technology that uh, that was being used. Now, before we invaded Iraq, now this brings us up to Iraq. Before we invaded Iraq, even the mainstream media was telling us that uh, Saddam Hussein believed himself to be the reincarnated King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, okay, if that's the case, then I think we need to take a quick look at uh, what was King Nebuchadnezzar up to. Well, we know that he built a structure out of gold, all right? Now, again, we have a problem with translations because it's come down to us in the Bible as a fiery furnace. But obviously it wasn't a fiery furnace because people would go in it, they come out of it, they get sick, they might die, but it wasn't burning people up. So he had a bit of this ancient technology, but he wasn't able to make it work properly. So what did he do? He went into Palestine, and he found the three Hebrew priests, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he brought them to Babylon, 
and he said, uh, okay, you guys are high priests, and you probably have knowledge passed down through the Kabbalah and the Torah, and uh, I want you to go in, I want you to see if you can't make that gold structure work. And they said, well, wait a minute, you're not our king, you don't believe in our God, we're not going to work for you. So he said, well, look, I'll tell you what, he said, I'm going to throw you in that thing, and you're either going to make it work or you're going to die. Now, interestingly enough, they didn't just grab them and throw them in. In the Bible, uh, it says that they first they donned their hats, coats, and other garments. Well, what does that mean, and why should we care? Uh, to me, I'm thinking perhaps they put on some sort of anti-radiation suits or whatever. But anyway, they put them in the structure. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't even want to go near it because he thinks it's dangerous. So he hollers out to his minions, and he said, Are those three priests in there? And they said, Yes, O king. In fact, there's a fourth person in there. Now, oops, wait a minute. So he's created a gold structure, apparently created an energy field, and now instead of three people, there's four people in it. And he said, well, who's the fourth? And they said, a son of God. And that's the last we hear of that. We don't know who that was, where he came from, but it smacks of them creating some sort of energy field, which could then become like a portal or a stargate, or whatever you call it, and you can move through it, because first there's three, then there's four. And that was the, that's the end of the story, and so we don't know who that was, or how that was, or what that was, but it smacks of ancient advanced technology. And we do know, what we do know, is that King Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed that he put the three Hebrew priests in charge of Babylon. All right? So now we come up to present time, and we find that Nebuchadnezzar believes himself, the reincarnated Nebuchadnezzar, and he was trying to rebuild Babylon, and he was having French and German archaeology teams going all over Iraq, digging and coming up with more and more of the artifacts and of the tablets and of the information that had been laying under the sands there ever since the time of the Anunnaki. And then all of a sudden, we've got to invade Iraq on false pretenses. And uh, in April of 2003, uh, even though at that point the International Atomic Energy Commission said Saddam Hussein does not have weapons of mass destruction or a nuclear bomb, uh, uh, our, our own weapons inspector, Hans Blick said, no, they don't have any weapons of mass destruction. But President George W. Bush said, I don't want to hear any of that. We're attacking. And we launched troops into Iraq in April of 2003. Now, Doug, what's interesting to me is, because I've been in, I'm an Army veteran, and I know about military tactics and strategy. You set an objective, you capture your objective, you consolidate your holdings, your winnings, and once you're prepared, you move on to the next objective. We didn't do that. We made a beeline for Baghdad, and we left the, the rest of the countryside unpacified, and we left the weapons in the hands of the uh, Iraqi army 
which has still caused us trouble because some of those folks turned those weapons on us and became uh, al-Qaeda, which then morphed into the ISIL or ISIS. Okay, so so what's the big deal about Baghdad? They rushed into Baghdad, and the Baghdad National Museum was looted of thousands and thousands of of objects. Yes, now, Jim, I, 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 I'm sorry, buddy. I gotta, I gotta stop you right there because we're at a hard break. Uh, right. but, but you know, this is this is what really caught my attention, and I had to rethink going back. And you, you really document this well in your book about the discoveries in Iraq, folks. This this issue right here is kind of what pulled me into uh, looking a little bit closer at the. What was going on exactly and precisely back in Iraq in 2003? What was found in 1999 or what was reported uh, by ABC News uh, back in 1999 that uh, nearly 400 ancient Sumerian artifacts have been discovered? But we're going to hold that until we get back. It's just an amazing... when When you look back, and again, past this prologue, and a lot of things that Jim is talking about here with respect to these artifacts and these findings. It's interesting when you look at it from just a different perspective than what we've been told because we know that history has been revised and anytime history is revised, there's a well, history, his story, right? Folks, you're listening to the Hagman and Hagman Report. Doug Hagman running solo. Guest Jim Mars. His, his book, Our Occulted History, of course, he's got Rule by Secrecy, the fourth, the Rise of the Fourth Reich, and many others, including Crossfire. And be right back. Stay right where you're at. Remember back in Desert Storm era, remember that? Desert Shield turns to Desert Storm. Uh, talking with Jim Mars, our guest, M-A-R-R-S. Folks, visit JimMars.com. But uh, visit the his Amazon page for many, many books. And as I said earlier, uh, folks, this man weaves um, a lot of historical facts and breaks a lot of, uh, breaks a lot of, History, revised history. I mean, really, as an investigator, Jim Mars is an investigative journalist, an award-winning one at that. New York Times bestsellers, but but he really documents. And it's interesting because I, I've seen some people say, um, you know, I wonder. In fact, they sent emails asking, I wonder how his books are footnoted. Uh, yeah, pages upon pages upon pages upon pages of footnotes that document the historical aspects of what we're talking about this evening. But the uh, it's interesting because back at, at uh, and I remember this clearly back during Desert Storm, Desert Shield. Of course, you had the uh, daughter of the uh, uh, ambassador testifying about the incubators, the children incubators that was completely fabricated. But what got me, and and this is kind of what what, what got me uh, thinking about this after I read. Our Occulted History by Jim Mars, he, he notes that once Baghdad was in American hands, this is going back to the first desert, or, well, desert storm back in, um, 
uh, April of 2003, looters had taken at least 50,000 priceless artifacts and tablets from the Iraqi National Museum. And he gets into great detail. And despite prior attempts, he writes, to alert American military officers of the danger of losing 7,000-year-old artifacts, American authorities failed to prevent the wholesale looting of humankind's most ancient treasures. And when you look at these little facts and this agenda you have to ask yourself, what was there? And we're getting into that, and we're talking about that now with our guest, Jim Mars. Portions of this broadcast brought to you, again, by Minuteman Stove, MinutemanStove.com, and also American Survival Wholesale, AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com, where we buy our Thrive brand long-term storable food. That's AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com, and we cook it on our Minuteman Stove, which, by the way, did survive, and I can't say too much for the back end of the, my vehicle, but you talk about holding up under some rough conditions. That stove, wow, it made in America by Americans, and I got to say, um, a good product, a great product, as a matter of fact. Jim Mars, thanks for holding on, and really appreciate you getting into detail about this. Go well, ahead and continue. Yeah, it, is, it is a fascinating story, and you pretty well laid the groundwork. Uh, I would add that there were museum directors from around the world who, prior to our invasion of Iraq, went to the Pentagon and said, look, you know, the cradle, this is the cradle of civilization. This is the earliest known civilization. Uh, I know way early on in grade school or whatever, I was kind of taught that the first great civilization was the, the Egyptian civilization, but that's not true, folks. The Egyptian civilization was simply a hand-me-down from the earlier Sumerian civilization and Sumer, S-U-M-E-R, okay? So all of this information has been handed down bits and pieces, a lot of it secretly because uh, every king, every new uh, priest, every new uh, religious leader, and I'm not talking about true religion, I'm just talking about people who are in charge, they, they don't want people knowing these things. So it's all been hidden from us, and, and this information has been passed along very secretly through um, what has come to be known as the underground stream of knowledge. So they were beginning to, uh, as Doug said, find amazing new discoveries in Iraq, and they would be sent, of course, to the Iraqi National Museum. And they would not yet be cataloged or displayed, so where would they be? They would be in the basement, okay, being stored away, being prepared, and being cataloged. And so when we invaded, we go straight to Baghdad, the oil industry is protected with tanks and troops. The museum, which museum directors around the world had urged the Pentagon to please preserve this, and were assured we were, but we didn't. In fact, when the rioting started, they sent in a contingent of U.S. soldiers who fired over their heads, kind of broke them up, okay, and then got orders to pull out. And they did. And the looters came back. The looters were a hired mob. They were there. There were others. I've seen other accounts where thousands of Iraqis uh, crowded towards the museum and were shouting, leave it alone. Don't do that. That's our heritage. And yet looters broke in and, and, as Doug said, took 
tens of thousands of pieces. Now, many of those have since been recovered because, as you might imagine, you know, Joe Blow Looter grabs something, and within a week he's at the flea market trying to sell it, you know. So we've gotten a lot of this back. But here's what Colonel, uh, Marine Colonel Matthew Bogdanos, who was Deputy Director of the Joint Interagency Coordination Group that investigated the looting of the Iraqi National Museum for General Tommy Franks, here's what he wrote. The basement is what we've been calling the inside job. And I will say it forever like a mantra. It is inconceivable to me that the basement was breached and the items stolen without an intimate knowledge of the museum. From there, about 10,000 pieces were taken. We've only recovered approximately 650. Okay, now let me add to that the fact that they found glass cutters uh, in the museum that are not commercially available in Iraq. They also found that the people who went into the basement bypassed very expensive-looking fakes. Okay, they found that some of the uh, rooms were unlocked and that some of the guards who were supposed to be on the duty uh, had inexplicably either called in sick or just didn't show up. People, this was an operation. This was an operation to go in there and take these ancient artifacts out of the Iraqi National Museum. Why would they want to do that? Because what I've just explained to you about the ancient technology. So I feel like they are trying to get future technology from the past. It's a very incredible story, right, Doug? You, you know, Jim, uh, we, we've had Ellie uh, Marzulli on. We've had Steve Quayle on, of course. We uh, luminaries in terms of the this ancient history. And what you just said there is key. I mean, you, obviously there's, there, there's different opinions, different perspectives about different issues, but, but, but there's this common thread, which you just said, yes, absolutely. Um, and, and, and there it is. I mean, perfectly said, perfectly stated. Hmm. Okay. So what, 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 where, where are we at with this then? I mean, okay. So who wants all this information, and yeah. and are we using it, or is it being kept from us? Well, now we get into the whole question. In fact, this is what prompted me was after the success of Crossfire, my book about the Kennedy assassination, and I ask about well, you know, what's the the real uh, truth about UFOs? And then we realize that there really are UFOs. There really are uh, beings out there. Then that led to the big question about, well, I'll put it this way, Doug, in the stereotypic, stereotypic view, when the UFO lands and a little, little alien gets out, what does he say? Go, uh... Take me to your leader. Oh, okay, 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 yeah. Right? yeah. Take right. me to your leader. Well, all right, then that begs the question. Who is our leader? Who speaks for Earth? Well, don't we have, uh, and, and that's a great question, don't we have somebody appointed or um, named at the U.N. for, you know, this? No, not really. Okay. We have a hodgepodge of nations with their leaders. I don't think anybody would say Putin 
speaks for Earth. I don't think anybody would say Obama speaks for Earth. In fact, I, I know a whole lot of people who think he doesn't even speak for the United States. <laughs> That's true. Right. Very true. And yeah, so until yeah. we can get our act together and we can do have someone who could speak for Earth, I think that's one of the major reasons why that uh, uh, somebody hadn't landed before now and said, okay, we come in peace. We want to be your, your friends and neighbors, you know. So uh, because who are you going to deal with? Well, that's true. Yeah, it was my understanding, Jim, and I don't know this. I mean, I didn't spend a lot of time researching this aspect of it. I thought there was somebody at the U.N. appointed to deal with, oh, you know, alien visitors and that kind of stuff. But without respect to that, I mean, again, Jim, this this to me is what we're talking about here. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I look at this as, as being part of, this grand deception that we're about to, you know, fall into. No, is you're this... absolutely right. Okay. And this okay, is good. why I called it hidden history, occulted right. history. Well, my book, Occulted History, by the way, uh, I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. When I use the term occulted, uh, this is not a book about witches or vampires or, or uh, you know, that deals with the devil. This I use the term occulted in the astronomical sense. When the moon eclipses the sun, that's called an occultation. Okay, it occults the sun, which simply means it hides the sun or masks the sun. So, so when I use the term our occulted history, I'm telling you history that has been hidden from us. Exactly, and, and folks understand that the meaning, the true meaning of the word occult, occulted. You're right; is is hidden, hidden from view, and and, and you're exactly correct, and, and that's. I'm glad you pointed that out because, uh, yeah, I, I never really gave that a thought. I just read it as that, the title of the book, Our Occulted History, meaning our, our hidden history. Um, but thanks for pointing that out, I guess. I well, yeah, too many thought. people though, think that if you mention the occult that, you know, you're talking about uh, seances or, uh, you know, some kind of devil dealing or whatever. Uh, and while I'm at it, uh, let, let's look at the definition of conspiracy. Uh, you know, that's been totally twisted. Uh, I have a 1940s uh, dictionary, and it gives the definition of conspiracy, a secret plan. Okay, well, okay. That's pretty, that's kind of a neutral definition, isn't it, Doug? That could be anything. Yeah. Uh, if, if I plan a, a surprise birthday party for you, uh, it's a secret plan. It's a conspiracy. But it's not bad, right? Uh, I might also point out, in fact, that in the business world, if you have a business, you probably, you probably, not probably, you'd better have a business plan, okay? And you don't tell that business plan to your competitors, do you? No, sir. Not that's secret. Okay, so you have a secret plan. So that's a conspiracy. But it's not bad. Okay, and yet today, and this goes back to, I can trace it back to a late 1960s memo that went out from the psychological division of the CIA to all of their assets around the world. That means their agents and their agencies and their offices, but it also means people in the media, 
people uh, in politics, people in Hollywood who have connections and are working with the CIA. It doesn't mean they're on the payroll. doesn't mean that they're a uh, registered employee. It just means they're assets, people who are in contact with the CIA. And they all got this. And the memo basically said that there's too many people around the world questioning the Kennedy assassination. And some people are even implicating Lyndon Johnson and they're also implicating our agency, the CIA, and this is bad for us, and we need to start counteracting that. So when somebody tries to question or, or raise up contrary information to the story that the Warren Commission put out, you need to say that's conspiracy theory, and they're just conspiracy theorists. And that's when it entered our lexicon and became basically, now you can read a modern dictionary and it will say uh, an evil plan, you know, to to uh, to distract someone from the truth or something like that. Okay? They completely changed it, the, the, subtly the meaning of the term to where now if you try to say, well, he's just a conspiracy theorist, then that's a it's a negative uh, uh, connotation, and that's a slur to his character, isn't it? It's it's a pejorative term, and, and you know what, Jim? That's why I'm so uh, so really I get angry sometimes when people try to uh, use our language uh, against us, and, and yes. we, you know, the, the, so many words have been redefined. Um, even, for example, the the gay versus homosexual. You know, really, uh, I mean, that's just one clear-cut example. But yeah. you, know, you talk about conspiracy. You talk about uh, occulted. And, folks, there, there's this intellectual attack on our intellectual uh, properties today. And I think, that, again, this is all by design, that the Tavistockian type of um, uh, influence over our language. And then being, uh, I'm glad you said that, Doug, because I was getting ready to pop off, too, and say, this didn't, folks, this didn't just happen. This is a plan, a long-standing plan to alter the face of the United States, both uh, politically and socially and spiritually. And uh, and you, one of the ways you do that is by attacking the language. That's right. That's right. And isn't it funny? Well, not funny, but isn't it ironic in, in a sense that, uh, for example, Twitter, you know, as a, a medium limiting limiting conversation or, or um, uh, messages to 140 characters, to, to dumb down, deliberately dumb down our, our population, which has already suffered an immense blow to the uh, intellect. And I can see this in some of the emails I get. Uh, trust me. Um, that, 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 you know, <laughs> I can imagine. Um, yeah. Oh my goodness. But but yeah. So so Jim. I mean, you're right on the money with this. But but and again, folks. I'm looking at this from a view from Mars, which I, I the view from Mars is pretty enjoyable when you look at, at at our occulted history and what really has been hidden from us deliberately by design. So, uh, man. Continue, brother. You're, you're, you're right. on a roll here. Yeah, well, I call it the view from Mars. I, I picture myself in orbit, okay, <laughs> around the Earth and, and watching everything that goes on. And when you back off and shed the emotional 
and personal involvement in issues, things become a lot more clear. Um, one example right now is there's obviously elements within the United States government, and particularly, well, and it transcends parties, but mostly in the Republican parties, they seem like they're intent on getting us into a war with Russia, of all places. Okay, and of course they use they they've got and they twist things around and there's all this bellicose talk and everything else. Well, I back off and I just look at it from as objective a standpoint as I can. And 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 here's what I see: first off, you cannot trust anything a politician says. All right, because and this is not a judgment call. This is just the truth. No one in this country today can get elected uh, get elected to office by telling the truth. That's very unfortunate, Sad. but that's the way it is. You tell yeah. the truth, you're not going to get elected. So they all have to lie. Um, my joke is that the, the surefire way of telling if a politician is lying to you is his or her mouth is moving. <laughs> Okay, and unfortunately, that's the way it is. So we're hearing all this bellicose talk against Russia, but then I back off and I look at it. Okay, when communism fell, largely under its own weight, we didn't we didn't attack Russia. We didn't drop a bomb on them. We didn't force them to do anything. They just finally said, "Hey, this socialism program is not working," and so they shed themselves from communism. And at that point, where was the Russian military? They were occupying Eastern Europe, as they had since 1945, and as they had all through the Cold War. There were Russian troops in the Baltic states, in Poland, in uh, the Czech Republic, in Bulgaria, Yugoslavia. Okay, now, they said, uh, under Gorbachev, they said, well, look, why don't we just call a halt to this Cold War? And uh, let's just take our marbles, go home. We'll leave everything the way it is, and uh, we we will pull out. We will leave Eastern Europe if you will guarantee that you won't expand NATO. And we said, okay, we agreed to that. So what happened? They voluntarily pulled the Russian military out of Eastern Europe. We didn't chase them out. We didn't fight them out. We didn't force them out. They voluntarily pulled back and said, okay, that's it. And what have we done? We've increased NATO. We are now ringing Russia with missiles. All right. Yes. We are, we've got NATO now in the Baltics. We've got NATO in Poland. All right. And we created this Hoorah in the Ukraine. The Ukraine's always been volatile, but it's also always been a part of Russia. Well, we put in people to stir it all up and say, we want to break away. And Russia says, no, wait a minute, you can't do that. And when they say that, then we point to that and say, they're the bad guys. Let me give you the exact same analogy. What if the Russians had sent agents into Texas? and stirred up trouble among some of the more radical Texans and said, let's pull out of the United States Union and we'll go back to being the Republic of Texas. And Doug, I gotta tell you, there's a lot of people down here and I I might be one of them (laughs) that would listen to seriously. (laughs) You know, (laughs) we're not seriously opposed to that. We 
certainly would listen to that. And so all of a sudden we say, okay, we want to withdraw Texas from the Union. Well, you know, you saw what happened in 1861. The United yeah. States would say, wait a minute, you can't do that. And I'm not sure how that would play out. But do you see the similarity? you see the analogy? It's the same thing. And yet, and yet yeah. nobody would say that uh, the United States was the aggressor because they're trying to keep Texas in the Union. Right. And and isn't that I mean look at that situation and look look at how that mirrors um, different times in history. I, I've got I got to tell you, uh, Jim. Uh, I've got a Stacy from uh, New England area, Larry from uh, Nevada, Ken from Washington, Don from Kansas. Oh, that's kind of neat. Anyway, um, all asking. You had mentioned about uh, uh, emails here. You had mentioned about uh, uh, Russia and of course how we are seemingly spoiling for a fight with Russia, uh, all saying, you know, you're so good with history, you're so good with um, the political history as well and geographical history. Ask uh, ask uh, Mr. Mars what he th- what you think about what's the intent here, uh, the larger intent in your view, geopolitically. Are we looking at, is, is, are the powers trying to start a third world war here or fourth world war, however you want to look at it, or a war, global war, or what's, yes. what's the intent here? All right, let me put it this way. And, folks, this is the good news. Here's the good news, okay? Uh, You you listen to Hagman Hammond and you listen to other people, and I don't have to uh, background you and inform you on the idea of the new world order, okay? Whatever you want to call them. Uh, There is a clique of people in this world mostly centered in the 10 to 20 major banks Okay, who want to create their new world order. They want one world global socialism. And uh, the reason they want socialism is because it sounds really good on paper. We'll all be equal, and we'll all share everything equal, and all production and and industry and distribution will be centrally controlled by the people. Okay, this is what what they sold to the Russians under communism. This is what they've sold uh, to other socialist countries like Venezuela. You can see how well they're doing, okay? And this is what they want because they realize that if you create a worldwide socialist system that for it to work efficiently it could only work with central authority you would have to have a central administration so that they could be equitably and effectively carried out for everybody in the world and if you create that situation they know they have the money and the power to gain control over that central authority and therefore run the world, which is one of the oldest, you know, goals in the minds of dictators and tyrants, all the way back to Alexander the Great, and even before that, they want to run the world, all right, and Mm. I don't know, first off, I will say this, and I might catch some flack, but I, philosophically, I have no real problem with globalism with the fact that we are one world because we are and we are one human race and in fact I can see possibly within some of our lifetimes that somebody's going to say hey where are you from and you're going to say I'm from earth 
okay? Because we all do come from this one little planet, and I'm sure we could all get along if we had reasonable, thoughtful, caring, concerned, educated leaders. But, of course, we don't. All right. In fact, what we have is a clique of people who have are working very hard to keep us fighting with each other so that we can't unite and say we're from Earth and we want to all just live and and get along peacefully. At that break again, you know. At that break again, Jim. Hold that thought. And I, okay. I um, you know, you know, a one world system of government would be great under. Under our Lord and Savior, of course. Yes. Uh, anything else, anything less wouldn't work, uh, obviously. Interesting email I got from Roger from Wisconsin who wrote, Hey, Doug, I bought The Rise of the Fourth Reich when I heard you were having Jim Mars on. Just finished it. Please tell him. Best book I've read in a long time. Roger from Wisconsin. Message delivered. Our guest, Jim Mars. Jim Mars. That's jimmars.com. M-A-R-R-S. Um, so you know you're striking some chords there, Jim. It's uh, interesting stuff. Well, Our the key point history. is, is that if we're going to have one worldism, we ha- we have to vote on it. Everybody has to agree to it. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want it imposed on me. <laughs> Amen, brother. Stay right where you're at. Going to be right back for our final segment. By secrecy, Jim Mars. Rise of the Fourth Reich, Jim Mars. Crossfire, Jim Mars. New York Times bestseller, bestselling author, and our occulted history. You know, folks, it's interesting when you read intellectual materials, like written by an investigative journalist, Jim Mars. It's it's interesting to see how much of history has been revised and hidden or occulted from us. And to know the backstory, to know that revised history, or to understand what has been revised, can give you some clarity about current events. And isn't that what we're looking for in terms of the geopolitical geopolitics of today? Yeah, I think so. We're looking for some clarity. Now, we obviously we have, we seek we seek spiritual clarity through the Bible, through the Word of God. But as far as the geopolitical landscape, boy, that could be tricky. It's like a three-dimensional chess game. Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Oh, it's always America that's good. Well, wait a second. There's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. Jim Mars makes it pretty clear breaking down some barriers and exposing what's really going on in his book Our Occulted History and and even Rule by Secrecy and many others folks. Take your pick on Amazon.com, Jim Mars M-A-R-R-S dot com who's been gracious enough to give give us his time this evening in this broadcast, three hours that's a that's a, an incredible gift of time and uh, show your support obviously by uh, by investigating further his books and uh, visiting his website. I, I just uh, thank you, Jim, for being so gracious to appear on our program. You really, uh, you're, you're, you're a legend 
among the within the news community. I mean, you're a legend. You really are. And I, I don't want to seem like I'm, uh, you know, seem like this is false flattery. But uh, uh, I, I've had so many people who said, "Man, I can't wait till he comes on to hear what he's got to say about this and that." And so here well, you are. Yeah, there's so many places we can go. And thank you so much for that. And again, let me give my caveat as usual. Uh, listen, folks, don't believe a word I say, okay? I'm not a politician, <laughs> okay? And, and I'm not trying to tell you that, uh, I, you know, I'm God-ordained or anything else. I'm just an old Texas journalist, but I'm not stupid, and I've had a good education back in the days of the old republic, and I've traveled around the world, and I know a lot of things. And so just listen. If I make sense, great. If, I, if you don't want to believe me, that's okay. Okay, too, but just go check out what I've been telling you and see if that doesn't prove out. Now, now what we have to start worrying about is because uh, I just mentioned before the break how that they are trying to push us into this new world order, this global socialist type system. And keep in mind, socialism <laughs> runs both ways. The communists were an extreme form of socialist. Well, you the Nazis, hey, the Nazis hated the communists. They fought the communists. But wait a minute, what does Nazi stand for? That's the German acronym for National Socialist. Okay? So they were socialist also. So, you know, you have to be, we have to be very careful about these people who want to try to run the world because they practice the methods of the old Bavarian Illuminati. And one of their basic precepts was the end justifies the means. All right? And that carried to its logical extreme, you can see what happens. They said, well, we want to rid Germany of certain undesirable people, so we'll just kill them. All right? The end does not always justify the means, and yet that is one of the basic philosophies behind socialism. And that's why we have to be very careful, because we have people who will say anything, practice anything, act like anything, promise anything, profess to be anything, and they're lying. Okay, uh, it's it's really incredible, and of course it creates a great problem for uh, all of us, and particularly Christians who are trying to live a Christian life, and they, we try to be honest, and we try to be open and above board with people, and it's hard for us to realize that there are people out there who will lie to you, will tell you anything, will act like they're anything, will promise you anything, and they're they're lying to you. And now, but the now for the good news. The good news is I think the New World Order people are on the run. They, they are scared, and, uh, that, and I, I see it all around me. Uh, Britain voted to get out of the European Union. That was a kick in the teeth to the New World Order. They didn't expect that. They didn't know that was going to happen. They figured they'd have uh, Cameron and all of their mouthpieces say, well, we don't want that, and people go along with them. But they didn't. The people rebelled. They said, we're tired of this nonsense. Okay, look at what's happening here in our own political scene. We've got the the right wing heading towards Trump. We've got the left wing. I, 
I was in California several times this summer, and I've always considered California, uh, you know, a bastion of liberalism. And I thought, well, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to have to come in contact with all these Hillary supporters. No, uh uh-uh. Everybody I talked, I didn't find, I, I don't even think one person had anything good to say about Hillary Clinton. They wanted uh, Bernie Sanders, okay? So, see, even even in our own political system, they are jumping from the establishment, from the old ways of doing things, and they're trying to find uh, new ways of uh, bringing true peace and democracy to our country. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is this puts the new world order on the run. And I'm telling you, they're going to be just like a cornered wild animal. When they feel like that their little providence and their money and their prestige and their power is in danger, they are going to fight back, and it's going to be ugly. And one of the ways they might fight back is by concocting another gigantic false flag. And this time, it won't be uh, terrorists from the Middle East or from Asia or somewhere. This time, it very easily could be threats of a, of an invasion from space. And if you think that's in the now, uh, back in the 50s when we saw the old movie War of the Worlds and everybody thought, well, that's cool, but nobody gave a second thought as to that might be really possible. But today, considering the technology that the secrets, secretive inner uh, groups of the New World Order have at their disposal, such as holograms, uh, go on YouTube and, and look up Elvis Presley uh, with uh, Dion, I believe. And they had uh, them doing a duet on stage for uh, uh, for a TV program. And I swear it looks like there they are. Here's Dion and here's Elvis. And he was a hologram. They have this type of technology. So just think what would happen if all of a sudden there's a figure in the sky and he says, I, you know, I'm, I'm the Lord Enlil and I've come back to take over. I mean, think, think what, what kind of havoc that could wreak. And don't think that, uh, that, uh, everything that, that we have space brothers are going to come save us. Because for one thing, I don't, if, they, if there are people out there, I don't think they really care much about us. In fact, uh, Stephen Hawking, uh, in a recent interview said, uh, well, we can, I'm quoting him, we only have to look at ourselves to see how intelligent life might develop into something we wouldn't want to meet. I imagine they may exist in massive ships, having used up all the resources from their home planet. Such advanced aliens would perhaps become nomads, nomads looking to conquer and colonize whatever planets they can reach. And then he pointed out, you know, what happened when uh, the Western civilization uh, reached North America. Uh, it didn't turn out too well for the Native Americans. And interestingly enough. This isn't even a new thought. Um, L. Ron Hubbard, who was a great science fiction writer, uh, I read him back in the 50s and 60s. He was right up there with Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke, and he, he wrote the book Battlefield Earth. 
about yep. and and what's interesting about Battlefield Earth is that unlike uh, some of the more modern uh, alien invasion stuff like the movie Independence Day and and some others where they come down and they blow up the cities and they try to kill everybody uh, in Battlefield Earth, which takes place in the year three thousand, uh, they've already conquered Earth. And uh, they've been here, you know, for thousands of years. And it wasn't that they came to conquer anything. They just, uh, you know, it was the intergalactic mining company that bought the concession to mine the planet Earth with money they borrowed from the intergalactic bankers, okay? <laughs> there was nothing personal about it. And so they came down here, and they were just strip mining the Earth, basically, and, oh, yeah, there were these pesky little humans <laughs> that were kind of in the way. So they, they had to just, you know, pretty much wipe them out. And uh, it, here, here was a store, Battlefield Earth, that's 30 years old, and it's really telling us what could very easily uh, happen to us right now today. Uh, and I think we need to be cautious of this, and I think we have to be very careful when we are being told all this stuff. We're being told uh, Russia wants to attack us. I'm sorry, the facts don't seem to bear that out. And we are told that, uh, you know, and so if we're told there's a threat from space, and if you'll remember, Ronald Reagan actually brought that up uh, at the United Nations back in the 80s when he said uh, maybe uh, uh, the countries of the world could be band together if there was a threat from space. So now, going back to, Doug, to the questions that some of your listeners are asking about, why are they causing all this trouble and what are they doing? It goes back to their, to, again, to Illuminati philosophy, which is the end justifies the means, and one of the things they subscribe to is the... Um, dialectic, the philosophy of George Hegel, uh, we call the Hegelian philosophy, which is a outline of human interaction. In other words, Doug, you want to go see one movie, and I don't want to see that movie, I want to see another movie. So we either toss a coin, or we talk it out, or we arm wrestle, or whatever, and we probably come up with movie number C that we can both agree to. All right, Hegel diagrammed this and called it thesis, antithesis, synthesis. All right, the thesis is you want to see movie A. The antithesis said, no, I don't want to see movie A, I want to see movie B. The synthesis is when we say, okay, well, we'll agree and we'll go see movie C. And now this in itself is just kind of an adequate diagram of human interaction. But what the New World Order people have figured out is why wait for a problem? Because synthesis, uh, antithesis and synthesis can also be said problem, reaction, solution. So, you know, we see this all the time. Oh, there's a big problem. Well, we got to do this. Well, no, we can't do that. Or, you know, most people don't want that. So then they say, okay, we'll back down a little bit and we'll do this. I saw this in the wake of the Murrah Federal Building bombing in Oklahoma. Okay, problem. We've got terrorists that are trying to, you know, blow up the country. Antithesis reaction is, well, we will pass all these laws against militia. We'll ban all guns. We'll blah, 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 you know. And everybody's going, wait a minute, wait a minute. Then the 
crisis, which is they don't quite get what they really wanted, but they still got some anti-terrorist legislation, and our liberties got further shredded. It's the old thing about two steps forward, one step back. And we have to understand how they operate, and this is exactly the way they do it. And uh, But there's more of us than there are of them. And if we'll simply become educated to what's really going on and how they operate, then we will not fall for for this problem. Uh, gun control is a classic example. They've been trying to ban guns, take guns now for a good number of years, but there's been enough people resisting that it hasn't quite worked, okay? And uh, we need to keep uh, resisting uh, in, in, in all areas. And so why are they trying to get in a war with Russia? Why are they, they causing such disruption in this country because they have figured out in order to make their uh, problem reaction solution work you know why wait for the problem we'll create a problem and then we'll offer a draconian solution and then when people go oh no don't do that we'll say well okay we'll do it halfway and they still get what they want Okay, so the whole idea today is, see, the biggest stumbling block to the plans of these New World Order people uh, is the United States of America. And why is that? Because we have a tradition of individual liberty and freedom. Two, we have a constitution and a bill of rights which guarantees us legally the right of personal freedom and uh, uh, democracy. And thirdly, we have guns. We have enough people in this country that we can stand up. If everybody could agree on something, we could stand up and say, no, that's not going to happen, and we can enforce it. This is why they are so desperate to take down the guns, and they are working hard at it, and they are creating the disorder. They're creating the problems. If you'll go back to, I'm not even going to get into 9-11, which was an inside job, okay? Uh, I'm sorry, anyone who believes that a Muslim cleric with a laptop computer in a cave in Afghanistan can somehow orchestrate an attack against our $40 billion defense system of the United States of America. Anybody believes that? I got a bridge in Brooklyn, I'll sell you, okay? But we won't even go there. Let's go for every terrorist incident that we've been told about from the shoe bomber on up to this very day. And if you peel back the covers and quit listening to the corporate mass media, you'll find that at the center of every one of those is an FBI informant or an FBI agent or a CIA asset. It's all false flag. Uh, for example, this is this is not conspiracy theory. This is absolute fact. The 1993 bombing of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. This was because of the FBI. 
What we now know and what came out under oath in court was that the FBI had an informant, a former former Egyptian army officer working for the FBI, who was on the inside, who helped instigate and helped set up the whole bombing of of the World Trade Center in 1993, and then told his FBI superiors, look, you know, this is starting to get real, and this is going to be dangerous. I think I can substitute fake explosives for real explosives, and then we'll catch them in the act, but there won't be any damage. And the FBI superiors said, no, let it go forward. And and go back and look at the damage and the casualties in the 1993 bombing of the North Tower, and that was due to our own FBI. So people, we've got to get on top of the truth. Amen. And you know what, Jim? Uh, just I'll share this with you. I, I, I don't think I, I shared this with you off off air, but um, we had uh, the Northeast Intelligence Network when it was operational and and working as as an operational asset for the Department of Justice and the FBI. And I've got a, I've got a letter to to, to prove that, that that we were accepted by the FBI uh, for domestic and foreign intelligence uh, called cultivating information about this. One one of our best analysts who infiltrated the uh, uh, Arabic language chat room said, uh, "Doug, I, we 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 have to stop. I can't do this anymore. I cannot tell the good guys from the bad. There are so many FBI or CIA agents in these chat rooms. I can't tell one from another. I can't tell the CIA agent from the real terrorist, and that's a problem. And just so you, I mean, you hit it out of the park on that one, Jim." You really did. Well, it's absolutely true. I, not long back, I was talking with a fellow who, uh, who was in the military and had been a sniper uh, over in Afghanistan. And make a long story short, he told me they put him up on a mountaintop and told him to shoot anybody that came through this pass, this mountain pass. He said, except the drug caravans, leave them alone. Yeah. Okay, so Sarah, we're over there yeah. protecting the drug caravans because yes. drugs are, are big money-making commodity and it's all a deal and by the way again i am not a republican i'm not a democrat i'm for truth but the truth is that hillary clinton and obama collectively singularly and collectively have taken steps to ensure the creation and the ongoing problem with uh, isis Okay, uh, I'll even give you a date. Go check it out. September the 13th, 2013, Obama announced that he was abrogating United States laws that, that prohibited the sale of arms to known terrorist groups because he wanted to sell arms and sell arms and send arms to the Syrian rebels so they could overthrow Assad in Syria, who I don't know the man. He may be a total tyrant, but he was elected. He was the leader of that sovereign nation. And we're sending arms and ammunition to people who wanted to overthrow him. And, of course, they immediately turned into ISIS. Where do you think ISIS is getting all these missiles? Where and what was the whole real purpose behind the deaths at Benghazi? Because they would stumble across the arms dealing that was going on and fixing to blow the whistle. So they not only allowed but orchestrated the attack 
on Benghazi, which killed our ambassador Stevens and his military guards. And Hillary was the first one to stand up and say, well, that was a spontaneous uh, action due yeah. to some, yes. to some uh, video, which, of That's course, right. is, is just simply not true. You're you're exactly right, Jim. We've reached the virtually the end of the program. We have some housekeeping to take care of before we cut you loose. Um, we got about two minutes left. Um, go ahead and take close us out in two minutes here, brother. Um, if we can, I mean, oh we, boy, that's like yeah. saying, yeah, I yeah, got two uh, minutes. Tell me everything you know. <laughs> that's not fair. I don't mean that. That's not fair. No, but I'll tell you what. There's more of us than there are them. There's good people in this country. Um, they've even got Christians fighting amongst themselves. Let, let, let's, let's let that go. Let's see if we can put the Christians all together. And you know what? I grew up with a lot of Jewish kids. I have no problem with Jews. Let's start working with the Jews. I have no problem with the Buddhist. Everybody I met that was a Buddhist, I kind of, I may kind of roll my eyes and go, man, I don't know about some of that stuff. But hey, they're peaceable, loving people, and they all are. Now, the only real problem we have when it comes to religion is the Muslims, because they are indoctrinated and taught from childhood to kill anyone who doesn't believe the way they believe. So we got a problem there. But I also, but I also understand that there are plenty of good Muslims in this country. What we have to do now is we have to go back and quit being divided and conquered and quit fighting with amongst ourselves and being torn apart by all of these sometimes spurious issues like, uh, like, uh, same stem cell research, cloning, abortion, you know, yes, these are all issues, and yes, there are dissension and there's controversies, but let's just all agree to disagree, and let's do it without being disagreeable, and let's turn our, uh, once again, let's get united like we did in World War II when the President of the United States came on radio and said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, and we're going to roll up our sleeves, and we're going to take care of the problems that's facing us today from the Nazis and from the imperialistic Japanese, and we did. And our grandfathers and grandmothers, they they, they worked their, their little tails off. They went to church. They took care of business, and we could do it today, folks, if you'll turn off your television, quit listening to the Tavistock indoctrination that they're putting on us where they're keeping us fighting tooth and toenail on all kinds of issues, you know, religion, race, sex, you name it. And let's just go back to being Americans, okay? Strong clothes, Jim. God, God bless you, my friend. I want to thank you and thank your wife for the, again, a gracious gift of three hours. And I know it's, it's rough, uh, when, you know, when, when you, when you block out of that length of time. She, she was a little put out that I said, I don't have time to eat your supper right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You almost got goes. me in trouble. Well, hey, th- thank your wife for us. And, Jim, thank you. I hope you'll come back again sometime. Thank sure. you so much for your great gift of time. God bless you, my friend. Jim Mars dot, uh, JimMars.com, Our Occulted History, numerous other books. Thank you, brother.
Thank All you, right. Doug. It's a pleasure. All right, man. Good night. All right. Good night, sir. Folks, uh, Monday, Monday, we are having a, a very special guest on Monday. Listen to this now. I had spent a lot, I had spent some time today, and I want to thank JD for setting this up or helping me set this up. Lieutenant Colonel Saras Sangari, commander of the Assyrian Christian Army. Did you hear what I just said? I, I spoke with Lieutenant Colonel Saras Sangari, the commander of the Assyrian Christian Army today. He's going to be joining us along with two other individuals related to that initiative on Monday, giving us a ground report of what's taking place in Syria. After my discussion with him today, understand one thing, genocide, Christian genocide, at the hands of ISIS, at the hands of the Muslims, with the assistance, full assistance, of Obama and Clinton. And yes, the CIA, the apparatus, the intelligence apparatus, and the, the, the paramilitary and military apparatus. Don't miss Monday. Don't. True Christians out there pleading, pleading to be heard. The, the lieutenant colonel, um, of the Christian, Assyrian Christian army in Syria. And, and if, if my 20 minute conversation with him today, if that is reflective of what he's going to be telling us on Monday, buckle up and tell everyone about Monday. I mean, you talk about, it's incredible. His information is incredible. That's coming up on Monday. Also next, next week, uh, Patrick Wood and, uh, Chuck Baldwin next week as well. And, and so, so folks, make sure you tell others about the Hagman and Hagman report. I want to say a special hello to my wife's niece, my wife's niece. Did I say that right? Liz and her husband, Jason. Jason's been a very huge asset to, uh, the Hagman report and to, uh, some other initiatives that we're taking, we're doing, um, that we, I can't really talk about right now. I want to thank each and every one of you for listening, for tuning in, for supporting our show. Thank you so much for being supportive of us. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your kindness. Pray for Pastor Paul Begley. Pray for us. Folks, saddle for battle. Thank you, J.D. Thank you, Eric the Tech. Just want to say God bless everybody. Anything that does happen of any consequence, tune in to the Hagman and Hagman Report over the weekend. I'm going to, I intend to be doing some videos as well. Until next time, God bless. Stay safe. Saddle for battle. We've left the building.